Digital Drift, episode 30, recorded Sunday, 13th of July, 2014. The Iron Giant. Two nights ago, a SATCOM radar detected an unidentified object entering Earth's atmosphere. Some assumed it was a large meteor or a downed satellite. This is no meteor, gentlemen. <laughs> this is something much more dangerous. So, I guess you're not gonna hurt me, huh? This is unbelievable. This is the greatest discovery since television or something. Hey, big metal guy! I got food here for you! Mm. Giant robot, I am now the luckiest kid in America. Banzai! All systems go! Blast off! Hey there, Scout. Kent Mansley. I work for the government. Now, why would you tell your mom about a giant robot? Mom! A little privacy! Sorry. What are you talking about? Where's the giant? For some reason, the army is in our front yard, Mr. Mansley. We must stop it at all costs. Go to Code Red. Repeat, Code Red. We've got to help him. Hogarth, no! We gotta hide. Hey, stop! There's a kid in his hand. You can't protect him, Hogarth. Run! Warner Brothers Family Entertainment presents the story of a young boy and a giant from another world you can fly who became a hero on this one you can fly the iron giant What with this being the 30th episode of Digital Drift, and with 189 episodes of Digital Gonzo in the bag, that doesn't add up, it's 91. (laughs) (laughs) What with this being the 30th episode of Digital Drift, and with 161 episodes of Digital Gonzo in the bag, and 209 episodes of Digital Cowboys before it, That makes this episode, give or take a few dozen specials, guest appearances, and three complete re-recordings. It was like five complete re-recordings, if you count that Toy Story 2 one we did. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That makes this my 400th podcast. That being the case, we decided to review a movie that is both very special to me and a perfect match for our little, unheard, but much-beloved show. 1999's The Iron Giant. As it turned out, this was a rather popular choice amongst our friends and community, so this show has ended up something of a party. A warm welcome to Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello. Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rinse and the Animation Archives. Hello there. Jerome McIntosh of Gameburst. Good day, sir. And Norme Chai-Bitty of the Digital Drift community. Hi. Hello there, for the first time. And, of course, my wife and co-host, Sharon. Hello. Oh, well, hello there. 
Now, we're going to have to work out which one's your 100th podcast, Sharon, and cover something of equal importance to you. Quantum Leap. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a date. <laughs> was there ever any question? I, I, you didn't even have to think about that one, did you? Nope. I was thinking, like, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but no, yeah, you're right, Quantum Leap will be that one. Okay. It's okay, we've only got, like, 170 episodes to watch. <laughs> This film, The Iron Giant, was released by Warner Brothers, a company not best known in the 90s for their theatrical animation wing. It was made for $70 million, including marketing, and released on August 6th, a week after the crucifyingly terrible yet inexplicably popular comedy laughter vacuum. Anybody? Inspector Gadget. Inspector Gadget. And ghost-spotting sleeper hit, The Sixth Sense, was released on the same day. It was also released a week after The Blair Witch Project. So basically, things suddenly coming out of nowhere and everyone being all surprised about it. There was so much that, you know, it, it kind of it didn't register. I, mean, I was actually lucky enough to be in Miami at the time, in August 1999. I saw a poster for The Iron Giant. I went to see... I saw a poster for The Sixth Sense. I went to see The Blair Witch Project, because everyone was talking about it. Okay, fair enough. Tarzan, okay, brilliant. Still one of my absolute favourite Disneys. The Astronaut's Wife, a completely forgettable shit Johnny Depp thriller with Carly Stowe because I had the hots for her, understandable. The Thirteenth Warrior, a, just an execrable piece of garbage directed in part by John McTiernan before he left and gave it to Michael Crichton to finish off. And what was the other one? Oh, God. Couldn't have been that good. It was mystery, man. Anyway, I I am very sad to say I did not help it to achieve the pathetic $39 million that it made at the box office. It was barely marketed and seen by only enough people to gain it the status of a complete flop. It was sent out to die by a studio that had no idea what to make of this story. There was hardly any merchandising connected with it, hardly any... Uh, TV advertising, it just wasn't there. It didn't register. And those who did see it fell in love, and it's a frequently a fixture in top animated films lists. Nevertheless, due to the superficial similarities, it is the best Transformers movie. And due to the symbolic and thematic similarity... Hang on, was someone going to go, I could see that? No, I'd say that's rubbish. I was going to say the opposite. <laughs> oh, you're going to say it's the worst Transformers movie? No, that's well, a rather thin link thin right there. <laughs> Strangulated, sort of left at Jupiter. Okay, but I'll maintain that. Anyway, and due to the symbolic and thematic similarities, it's the best Superman film? I'll agree with that. Yep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You could certainly get away with best giant robot film. Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. <laughs> Even then, actually, I, know, I would a, still say that one, this actually... <laughs> it's close. I would still argue this is actually superior to Pacific Rim in certain ways, but yes. I, I, yeah, I, I would agree. Well. Yeah. <laughs> See, there's a hair's breadth between them and they keep swapping places for me, which is how it should be for me. That's a good problem. I, I, like, I like the idea of, uh, of, of it being in constant flux. Basically, whichever one I'm watching currently, it's suddenly my favorite film ever. If adults went to see animated movies without kids in tow in the West, it may even have been a bona fide classic rather than a cult classic, which it became. Cult classics lack the direct cultural impact 
ironically, and franchise marketing potential of straight classics, but their influence is felt in other ways, including themes and styles reprised in Brad Bird's far more popular, well-marketed, The Incredibles and Ratatouille movies, a clear traceable correlation with Pacific Rim, and a fairly obvious inspiration for the character development in the TV series Transformers Prime. In the interests of enthusiastic discussion, I'm going to throw an extensive series of bullet-pointed talking points out to the crowd. So we shall start with Brad Bird's career. So who knows what he did before this, and then obviously what he did afterwards. Um, was He was involved with The Simpsons before he was. this, wasn't he? He was a writer on The Simpsons. Like 168 and... episodes, basically from the, from the very beginning all the way through to around about season 8 when it started to decline a little bit. And yeah, he directed uh, two or three of them as well. He was uh, he was pretty heavily involved the whole way through. So basically, when The Simpsons was great, Brad Bird was there. Also, notably, David S. Cohen was there before he left off and went to do Futurama. So it's like losing those two guys, it may have lost a little direction around about the season 10 market. I've actually um, recently watched it from 10, 11, 12. Well, I watched it all the way through to season 14. And it's still really good, but by 14, there's a definite decline. It's starting to really dip a bit. Um, anyone? Yeah, so carry on. Um, was was he involved in uh, another... Uh, batteries not included. Would he, was he involved in that? He was. He, he co-wrote it. Oh, as a ah, writer. There are correlations between that and the Iron Giant, actually. You know, peace-loving robot thing comes from another planet, befriends somebody fragile. Yep. Previous to all that, he had been he had started out at Disney and uh, kind of in that new stock of uh, young animators with like like Tim Burton and John Lasseter. Yeah, and uh, he early eighties period. He yeah. didn't stay quite as long as a lot of them did. He worked on the Fox and the Hound and then kind of left and started doing a lot of TV stuff. Didn't he do Family Dog as well? He did. Yes, he uh, directed yeah. those for uh, Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories series. Mm. And then after this, he went on to do. Uh, I mean, somebody at Pixar must have gone. Well, this, you know, this this is an incredible movie, and it was badly marketed. But this, you know, this guy really knows his stuff. We got to get him in. Yeah, I'm I mean, assuming he had some sort of prior relationship with John Lester. Well, yeah, he would have been in the same class at CalArts. So, and the Iron mm. Giant definitely, even if it wasn't a big hit, other animators and uh, Hollywood people in animation would have seen it and been very impressed. So it it opened some doors for him. See, that's one of our um, things that we have always kind of flown high on in this podcast is that we're the podcaster's podcast. So I, I guess that's, again, another brilliant reason why the Iron Giant works as, as a sort of a symbolic version of ours. Um, of course, I'm flattering the hell out of our podcast. We could never possibly be as good as this film, but uh, we can try. you know, you got to aim somewhere. And then, yeah, so he did The Incredibles and Ratatouille. He's currently working on Disney's Tomorrowland and will reprise The Incredibles for Incredibles 2 which is one of the few Pixar films I really want to see a sequel to Anyone read the original book? I have uh, actually <laughs> One at a time Who said? Who was the other person? Me Sharon Okay um, Sharon first then Josh Okay I read it years ago but it was secondary school English time so I don't really remember it very well except to know that the story in the film doesn't follow the book that closely and the book is very short right Hi, Josh uh, well yeah I, I read this in primary school and um, 
Yeah, to say it differs is kind of an understatement because uh, there's a space-backed angel dragon at the end of the book. <laughs> One of those. Um, and while the themes are very similar, that, that there's you know this uh, message of peace in the book that carries through to the film. Um, the film is a lot more um, direct in its message. Um, like it's not afraid to make correlations to like real you know real world events that are going on at that time in history whereas the book kind of abstracts it a little bit more and makes it a bit more fantastical um but yeah in terms of like the soul and the spirit of the what the book was trying to achieve the film captured that wasn't it actually written by uh poet laureate ted hughes to explain to his kids about death after their mother killed herself. So was it Sylvia Plath? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that's the... I don't want to say urban myth, because it might very well be, but I, I think more may have been made of it than was actually the case. Right. So he didn't write it for his kids to explain why... But I could be mother, wrong. I don't know. I honestly... head in the oven. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, folks, if you know, then let us know. Hang on. Um, next point. Uh, who's been watching the, uh, extra material on the, uh, special edition Blu-ray? Oh, sorry. I wish. Yeah, really. <laughs> special edition DVD. I have watched some of it, yeah. Mm. So you've seen the deleted scenes? Yes. Can you, uh, would you agree that those are best left deleted? I think there are one or two deleted scenes that could come back in and, and it sounds like there are one or two of them that bird really wishes could have been in there but they were kind of cut just for budgetary reasons but uh i think the film does not need them but uh there there are a couple of scenes that probably wouldn't have hurt if they'd been in there why what were they there are a few scenes that um and the nice thing about the dvd is that each one of the deleted scenes has a bit of a foreword by uh by brad himself uh there are some cool there was uh, originally a much longer kind of opening intro sequence involving kind of the sailors on a boat in in a hurricane, and there were uh, it was, it's very similar to what ultimately was there, but it was just kind of longer. There were more sailors, more characters. It just took too long to get to the main story. Yeah. Uh, there was also uh, the two scenes that he wanted to still be in there. There was one that uh, involved a short little conversation between Hogarth's mother and Dean, just kind of introducing them having a little bit of conversation and kind of setting a little bit of foundation for there being a relationship between the two of them. And yeah. uh, there was another sequence that uh, was a little bit more story integral that involved the giant at some point while sleeping out in the scrapyard having oh, dreams, a yeah. dream. Yeah, having a dream that kind of just... Uh, came out as a signal and started appearing on Dean's television of visions kind of from f the first person perspective of the giant of basically what he is of, of armies of robots marching on planets, destroying stuff, him seeing a reflection of himself in kind of the transformed death like variant, uh, seeing a planet explode, stuff like that. And then the giant wakes up outside the window and you see the TV go back to normal. It's, it's really an interesting inside Jeez. look though. Maybe it provides a, I know Brad was really wanting to be very careful about, getting too deep into the details of the giant's origins because right. as soon as you open that Pandora's box and pull that thread, you have to keep going and soon the film just kind of becomes about the giant's backstory and not really about yeah. the story about the giant and this boy that he's trying to tell. So I, it's, it may be best that that was left out, but it was a pretty interesting sequence. That's a fine point about if you pull that thread out, you have to keep pulling. Yeah, that's one of the strengths yeah. of the movie. 
Yeah, it's a, it leaves a lot of uh, stuff like uh, what the giant's there for, uh, either um, to be inferred by you, the viewer, or not left concrete. And mm. a, a lot of the other deleted scenes have uh, in common that um, what was conveyed within them is conveyed in some other subtle way throughout the movie. Uh, one of them significantly... Um, Hogarth and Annie are driving in the car and Hogarth mentions overtly I miss dad. Well of course they miss him. It's 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 clear that their their family is little and broken as Stitch would say. It's little and broken but still good. Yeah. Still good. Uh there's a little picture of him just once later on and Lyra gathered from that as did everyone else apparently who saw this film. Yes, they ha- uh, Hogarth had a dad. He was a fighter pilot. He's not around anymore. Make from that what you will. They they got that. Just the fact that there isn't a dad is enough and around the time period. Yeah, the deleted scenes leave a lot of stuff that can be just kind of felt rather than directly addressed and said. And it, yeah. I think it works a lot better that way. And as I mentioned earlier, the whole Blu-ray thing, uh, there's a reason why this hasn't been released on Blu-ray uh, yet. An HD version does exist. You can buy it on iTunes. I'm gonna... Uh, it's eight ninety nine. I don't care. I'll get it on uh, uh, just to get an HD version on my iPad. Maybe even some point just to, just to watch it on Apple TV. Uh, Warner wants to do a bare bones Blu-ray disc, and that'll be the end of that. And that'll be the last hard copy version of the Iron Giant ever released. Uh, Brad Bird wants to do a special edition with like loads of extra gubbins, possibly some sort of making of, just to pull out all the stops. Uh, neither of them can really come to an accord, and so a Blu-ray does not exist. It bothers me. If only Warner would just say, look, why don't we just chuck out the vanilla disc, uh, and then if that sells well, then maybe we'll do a special edition. Like, at least meet halfway with Brad Bird and Warner Brothers. Yeah. Like, like a commentary. They could release a Blu-ray disc. Yeah, yeah. Well, the commentary's and already on special, the... Like, oh, yeah, that's right. Frankly, you could just take everything that's on this special edition, which is actually really kind of, it's got erratic bits and bobs here and there, especially in the sort of, um, the, the branching one, you know, where you gotta like click on the nuts and bolts edition and like, I hate, I've hated that since the Matrix White Rabbit thing. You know, when you're watching a DVD and you've gotta like, be like constant, like a gunslinger. Oh, the White Rabbit appeared, quick, go! And then click on the, uh, the thing, otherwise it'll disappear. Yesterday we missed one and we had to rewind and we couldn't find where it was. And it, it just opens up a one and a quarter minute bit. All of this stuff could be neatly arranged into a, a single making of collage. You know, just, just for, for neatness's sake, even if you can't get everyone back in. I think one of the issues is going to be that if you're going to be talking to people about a film that they made 15 years ago and that they're all going to be deep down, pretty annoyed that nobody bloody saw it despite their hard work it's going to be hard not to say bad things about Warner Brothers I hope for a Blu-ray because I, this is something that I really need to sort of get into people's hands and it's it's hard to suggest an old ass film which where the last significant release was like 2003 the 15th anniversary of the movies this year actually yeah I know this, I mean, by the time this is released it'll be almost exactly 15 years since it came out The film starts with beeping, and it closes with beeping as well. So it begins with Sputnik, the, uh, the the thing that everybody's terrified of, which only orbited Earth for a couple of months, so that's when the Iron Giant had to be set. Uh, it was uh, in uh, 57. And just the beeping alone 
coupled with the sort of the shot of this this wonderful sort of this this achievement of man that through perception <laughs> Kent Ansley even mentions later on that there's a a darker side of, progr- of progress and you know we got we collectively as a species got a man-made satellite into space and America was terrified of it and suddenly you're in that place in time the imagery at the very beginning really helped to set up the sense of 50s paranoia that ultimately we don't necessarily have the right frame of reference to understand so our well I say our I'm pretty sure I'm at least 10 years older than some of the people on this podcast so their perception may be even slightly different from mine but my perception of the Cold War as it was in the 80s is very different from the perception of how it stood in the 50s but the opening shots you have the Sputnik satellite which I don't know how accurately they drew it or whether it was supposed to be more representative than a literal replication but it looks like an eye and then it pulls out and you have the moon which looks like an eye in space and then you have the comet coming down through the atmosphere and plunging into the eye of the storm so you have this sort of sense of watching watching always watching building up that's not to say by the way that the russians didn't want america to be terrified of their uh, man-made satellite the uh, it was effectively a, a move in a giant chess game they were engaging in uh they, they knew the reaction it was going to cause that doesn't make it any less of a massive achievement i don't think that they could possibly have anticipated the strength of the reaction that they got though mm. Well, one of the best things about setting in the Cold War is that both side, sides, particularly from the point of view of the Americans, like, they could do anything, like, technology could advance within the blink of a wise, blink of an eye as far as they were concerned, because they just, they recently launched Sputnik, and it plays into the whole fact that they'd had comic books coming out of giant Russian robots attacking American soil, and the fact that the, they have this giant robot not attacking but just around it lends it quite well to the fact that you, a lot of first people's thought was the Russians are attacking they found a way to they've found a way to advance so far that they've built giant man-made robots and the 50s in particular is a really interesting part of the Cold War to set this sort of thing in because it's it's very early on in that cold war the bomb is still a really new relatively new invention and it leads Mm. to this feeling of this is a really new thing and we have no idea what's going to happen like what else are they going to come up with anything could happen at this time what are like and like what are we going to do and it's also set in this weird time that is so often idealized in american history because it just looks so whole like if you want to take a slice of what idealized american like family home suburban life looks like the 50s is one of those prime eras and times that we look back on with such nostalgia but there is underneath that so much panic and fear and just wild Mm. imagination of what's going to of what might happen that it is the perfect time to set a story like this to introduce a big huge scary what is that 
thing. I don't know what that is. I just know we didn't make it, and it scares me. Is that not what part of that nostalgia is kind of a reaction to as well? Because if you think about it, that idealized 50s picket fence, plastic on the furniture family never really existed, at least not in the this is the typical and average American family way that it's kind of pushed. But if you think about it being sandwiched between coming out of the Second World War and wanting to give an image of America is still fine. We Mm. were untouched by this great catastrophe that happened to everybody else in the world, but not us, image to the world. And also reacting to this growing paranoia with, no, we're fine, everything's fine, sweep it all under the rug, everything is perfect. Yeah, there was a lie they were suddenly very, very good at telling and everyone was too afraid to speak out against it at the time. So that's why when people look back on times when things were wholesome, they were just as f***ed as they are now. It's just that no, there was they didn't have the communication channels to allow people to understand and look beneath the veneer in the same way. There's a lot of yin-yang kind of things in this movie, and one of the um, things that is in the movie is a pre-World War II innocence, uh, but also a post-World War II like, fear of the world. Yeah, it's lots of private bomb shelters being built under beautiful green lawns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely feel that they yeah. were really smart about setting it um, in an, a rural, like, out-the-way little town. The fact, the sort of place where something can go on, and yeah. unless you get someone like Ken from the government going out there to investigate, you'd never hear anything about it. And everything mm. just seems like a a rumor that some some drunk sailor made up. It's called, the town is called Rockwell, which is in reference to Norman Rockwell, who uh, got incredibly famous painting uh, pictures of idyllic Americana. He he was the brush behind this idealized uh, vision of America at that exact period, um, post-40s, mid-50s maybe, and uh, just before the 60s when everyone started calling foul. And uh, also the fact that it's set in Maine, for some reason, makes it feel vaguely Stephen King-like. Three out of five people in Stephen King's Maine have telekinetic powers. (laughs) Absolutely. There's a lot of shining going on all over the place. It's the most supernatural state in the Union. (laughs) Establish the mental powers. The rest of it writes itself. Clickety-clack. Oh, yes. And the fact that it's set in the 50s. And the fact that it mentions Sputnik. Mm. And the fact that it's about a young child. Young boy, yeah is yeah. frankly better at handling the world than he has any right to be. You don't want to go down that road, and there's Iron Giants down there. He's <laughs> <laughs> waiting for that. <laughs> they come in on the Sputnik, you know. The music, interestingly enough, when you see... Um, it starts off with a sort of, oh, my God. Like, um, you know, there, there's a, a bit of foreboding there. But then suddenly there's this sort of a twinkling, tinkling sound, and then when the Sputnik comes on, that's why I'm always sort of filled with elation to see it, because even though America was scared of it, looking at it up close, it's not scary. It's just something we've managed. Yeah. And so you've got this music, which isn't going, can't you hear the music, Marge? <laughs>
you know, just to begin with, Michael Kamen, this is one of the last things he ever um, composed for. It's, it's one of his best. Absolutely. Uh, any words on the music? Uh, I like the fact that the Iron Giant, whenever he takes a step, the music is in complete tandem with his steps. Yes, yeah. There's a, some great uh, choreography uh, with the animation, just trying to match the uh, music that's going along with it. Or actually, sorry, the way films are made, the music goes along with the animation. So I think it's it's really clever on the composer's part to you know, be aware of what's going on on screen and actually try to get the music to match the movements of the characters rather than just be some background music that's rather pleasant. There's a, there's a wonderful kind of Peter and the Wolf vibe uh, came and mentioned uh, when uh, you first meet Hogarth because uh, there's, there's that running through the whole thing. When uh, he meets the deer in the forest, of course came and riffing on Bambi. Kent Mansley... When uh, when he turns up, he's accompanied by the bassoon. It wasn't going to be uh, something that was intended originally, but then he just went with an obnoxious instrument that kind of announces itself to you. And when played too loud and too harshly, can can actually kind of rasp and, and sound terrible. Uh, and uh, so yeah, li- listen carefully for uh, Kent Mansley because it's it, there's a pomposity to his backing. The giant, especially when Hogarth's looking for him, has, the, has these sort of wonderful kind of like sliding strings that inspire curiosity, a little bit of trepidation, but not outright fear. It's very well managed to make sure that children aren't terrified. Well, I think the reason why the giant works so well is because he feels like a big kid. Yeah. And the music reflects that. It, it conjures up the the image of a child curious about the world and wondering what's going on around him. I've been trying to pin down the animation style, and maybe you guys can uh, help me on this. I can't think of a single movie that actually looks like this. I think The Incredibles and Ratatouille have a similar style, like the characters have a yeah. similar physicality like to them. they could them. have been drawn originally by the same person. Yeah. yeah. Different uh, uh, techniques. Yeah. Yeah, The Incredibles is the closest I can think of. There was something about the perspectives specifically in the film that did make me think of The Rescuers Down Under. Mm. Be- possibly because that was the first film that really used the technology that enabled them to do camera turns within an, an animated environment. But the the scenes in that where you've got views off the top of the, these great big rocks of the Australian landscape, and here it's being used to demonstrate the giant's perspective of the town. Sharon, you asked a, a question which I couldn't answer yesterday. Um, you might want to ask it of Dan right now, whether this is pertinent or not. It might actually be very pertinent. Uh, go for it. Yeah, the way the characters have been realised, I wondered whether, Dan, I get the impression, and I could be completely misreading on this, that even two-dimensional animation these days is animated using computers. A lot of the the documentary footage that I've seen has been of artists hand-drawing, but hand-drawing using tablets and screens. Is that 
correct? That is definitely the case now, uh, and even Disney, like when working on the newest Winnie the Pooh and stuff like that, is working on tablets in uh, in software. Gotcha. I don't know for sure whether that would be the case with this one. It's kind of, I mean, would have been produced late 90s. It, it very well could have been, though I think a lot of animation was still done uh, with pencil and paper at the time. I, don't uh, think I remember version. seeing in in some of the um, production stuff, Sharon. There was a sort of they were drawing it on paper. Yeah, but they would have okay. had so, to have been so working it's... with the computer a good deal because they're having to integrate two D and three D elements with the with Hogarth and the giant at all times. Yeah, so of course, the giant is a is a three D uh, made to look like two D. But uh, what was your actual question, Sharon? Well, specifically, what had occurred to me was when a two-dimensional character is drawn that way, is it still necessary for the artists to hand animate every frame or can they draw in the character and then get the computer to do some of the movement elements? It depends on the software you're using, but generally the way they would be working, they would still be drawing every frame like they had always done. There are certain so- like if you look at vector based animation software like flash and things like that and that which a lot of tv animation is done in now you can get some of that kind of computer giving you some movement for free stuff but there's a, it has a very distinct look it you the reason you'll look at something like uh i don't know I, I guess the reason you look at something like the my little pony series versus something that is still done traditionally like the cora or avatar series you can feel a very different there's a very different feel in the way that they can portray things uh, ah, actually, so does that answer your, uh, Sharon, does that answer your question that would that mean that My Little Pony Friendship is Magic is drawn in 2D but then animated in 3D? It kind or of is. It's, it's a little weird to explain, but it is using some of the same 3D techniques to animate a 2D object. And I guess it's not entirely the same, but South Park is done in kind of a same way. It's animated with 3D software even though it is all 2D objects and images. Gotcha. It's it's a it's a weird bit of a blend that it has some of its strengths in terms of efficiency and some major limitations in terms of what it can actually do visually, but yeah. but in this case it, they would have definitely have been drawing every frame and working very hard to make their three D work on the giant fit visually to look like the giant and Hogarth are in the same space. Mm, absolutely, I I did particularly love the way they have almost used that as part of the animation style so when the giant is intended to look more threatening and more alien and aggressive the 3d seems to become slightly more obvious and when Mm. he's being more human and more relatable it softens a little bit so that Mm. he, he seems more animated in the same style as hogarth if that makes sense i hadn't even noticed it but you're right it totally does and don't know if that's as i wonder how intentional that ended up being that whether or not it is it absolutely like works in having that effect because they would have had to have been very careful to really make him look as 2d as possible if he's going to be in the same frame as a character like hogarth but when he's in like death robot mode he's usually in frame by himself he could be as 3d looking as they wanted without it looking weird but yeah, Without it does definitely. Out, yeah. It definitely has that effect, though. He looks more alien and not of that world when he is in full attack mode. Yeah. So, is this the inverse of the magic carpet then, rather than uh, it being a two D character that gets a three D um, pattern put on it? Is it the other way around? Uh, it's still a three D character, but in which they render in a very flat, shaded, 
way, and they mm-hmm. ad- adapted some software as well to try to bring some unevenness to the his outline so that it felt a little bit like a 2D drawing with some slight oh, imperfections. Sure. So, of, yeah. Because okay. if it's just – and sometimes they would animate it – this is super technical, but if they – Go for it. <laughs> Uh, you, usually when animating a lot of things in 2D, you're not actually drawing every single 24 frames a second. A lot of times you can get away with drawing some stuff every other frame, so 12 frame drawings per second. 3D can give you 24 frames per second easy because the computer's doing a lot of the work, but they would still have limited the renderings to just being every other frame on him in the shots where he's with a 2D character in that same way so that he's not moving super smooth in 3D-like and they're moving kind of stuttery the way a 2D drawing would. That's still in a way that still works for us. So, yeah, they worked very hard to make he and Hogarth look like they're in the same movie. So, Eli Marienthal, speaking of Hogarth, as Hogarth Hughes, I was saying yesterday, this is a alarmingly accurate portrayal of a young boy in a way that actually you don't see all that often. He bends rules and he's exploratory and uh, he's... Must be, must be the best way of putting this. He's not just an annoying kid. He's yeah. very relatable. Well, you, you can certainly feel that he's brought his own... He's, he's brought himself to the character because a lot of times, because you have like adults writing dialogue for children, you get that very disjointed feeling. Whereas yeah. when when they let them speak more naturally and add to their own dialogue, it comes off far better. Yeah, often especially with uh, precocious kids, you get uh, kids who've been very well educated. And so uh, we had movies mentioning this the other day. Oh, hang on, no, this was during their Tooth Fairy review, which was a few months ago. They don't speak like people. They speak like someone who's been told the words but not really processed them. But uh, whenever Hogarth speaks, every single word seems to be from the heart. I suspect that part of that is to do with how well the combination of writers and directors relate to children. Because... If you look at the way that children are often portrayed in kids' films, and I mean kids' films in inverted commas, the ones that are all full of mindless babble and let's make as much noise as we can to keep the kids occupied for an hour and a half, um, the they don't really seem to care much about children, or not in the sense that that they don't care about their existence, but just that they don't seem to want to relate to them on any level as human beings or try to encourage them to absorb the world in any way other than loud and colourful and babbling. Yeah, I I think a lot of films write kids as stupid, which is not what kids are. Kids can be very, very intelligent. The difference between a kid and an adult is an adult has a lot of cynicism and baggage that's just built up from experience and, you know, living in the longer. Kids don't have that, so they're more adventurous, they're more curious, and they're more imaginative. That, that That's what I think this film captures is Hogarth is just as intelligent as a lot a lot of the adults in this film. He's just not weighed down by the fear and prejudice a lot of the grown-ups in this film have. And Bird seems to have a history of having of working on some films and shows with some very solid kid characters. Like the kids in The Incredibles as well also feel very yeah. kid-like but not in an obnoxious way. It feels very true to a young to like to just young minds kind of at various stages of development and siblings interacting with each other 
and interacting with their parents in the, kind of the different ways that that works. I suspect even on The Simpsons, he probably had some input in really... Like, Bart and Lisa can be as much kid or as much sort of adult as they need to be from episode to episode, but there are some episodes, especially early on, where they really do kind of nail that young kid behavior feel, and I suspect yeah. he had a hand in that. Do you think Hogarth and Dash are the same age? I think Dash is probably a little younger. I I would put Hogarth at probably around ten, maybe nine, and I would put Dash at about seven. And yeah, unless Dash is only three years old, Sharon. <laughs> I'm missing a joke. Quicksilver. Oh, from Quicksilver. The days Come of on. Hey, oh, yeah, Josh got right. it before you did. <laughs> <laughs> he moves so I fast, apologize. folks, that he ages faster. Can that be canon? <laughs> <laughs> Please say no, because that means by the time The Incredibles 2 comes out, he'll be as old as Ollie Johnston. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas, two classic Disney animators, both feature in uh, The Incredibles as uh, those two old guys at the end uh, who go, ah, that's old school, no school like the old school. And uh, the train driver and, is it an engineer who uh, uh, turn up after the train crash in this? I think so, yeah. 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 Clearly uh, Brad had uh, a very soft spot for these guys. Uh, and uh, they, yeah, they, they feature as themselves, and they are also uh, in the in unusual circumstances because usually uh, in in animation they they don't put people directly into movies. Um, they are literally playing themselves on the screen. Also, what's that number, um, Dan? I'll, is it one eight five? It's a it's a number that uh, all of these animators all attended uh, school at. Oh, what's that? What is that it's number? It's like A one one. I want to say. Let me double check. It's in loads of Pixar and Disney movies. Yeah, it's it is a it, it, Oh yeah, it is. It is the classroom that uh, Bird and Burton and Lassiter and all these guys uh, the were in in, Cal- in those very early animation classes in CalArts. Okay, looking at pictures on Google Images, the uh, car that Woody clings to the back of in the original Toy Story, A113 number plate, the camera in uh, Finding Nemo, A113, the, um, the steering wheel in Wally has A113 in the middle of the red uh, eye at one point, possibly an error message. Uh, Flick walks past a cardboard box with A113 uh, written on it. There's a, a like a label behind Emilio's ear in uh, Ratatouille, which says A113, and a train rushing at the uh, camera in either Cars 1 or Cars 2, A113. I'm looking so, at a wiki yeah. page with well over 50-something entries. Oh, <laughs> I see, uh, I see a number with Krusty on it. Yeah, Krusty's got it on his, uh, his prison gear. Yeah, Brad Bird um, puts it in every single thing he makes. Uh, so yeah, look out for that number, folks. <laughs> Would you say grace, please? Oh my god. Um, uh. Oh my god! We, uh, thank you for the, Food that mom has put in front of us and stop! The, uh, the devil! From doing bad things and, uh, get out of here! Uh, Satan? Go! Go, you soul! That we may live in peace. Amen. Amen. That was, hmm, really unusual, Hogarth. 
I forgot to wash my hands. Well, I... okay. Jennifer Aniston is Annie Hughes. She might be my favorite mother character in all of animation, including Mrs. Incredible. I mean, they're kind of they're on the same tier easily, but I wow. really, yeah, I really love this portrayal of Hogarth's mom. She is great, although I would say that Helen is probably a fraction sharper. I would say so. Yeah, I, there's something feels just very I don't, real and very. I love that they at no point to make she's at no point kind of this nagging type of mom. She's just she seems like she's very busy and she mm. does have a handful of a, a handful of a child who she adores and is just doing her best to take care of. And just but some of the the amount of personality they give her as a mom just the sequence in which Hogarth is trying to fake praying while trying to get the giant convince the giant's hand behind his mother to leave and not be seen and just her very quiet non-blinking stare at him <laughs> trying to judge what are you doing <laughs> you're doing something <laughs> i think for me what summed her up was the uh, the cut between after the squirrel incident and you see her face and it's just like words are about to be said and most of them will be very loud and then it cuts to her calling Hogarth at home to tell him that she's going to be late home and it's obvious in that exchange that she bears him no grudge despite the fact that he has completely trashed her restaurant and there's just something about the way she talks to him in that phone call which is so caring and understanding and sympathetic but firm at the same time she just seems to have parenting the tone of it certainly i I wouldn't necessarily say right because there is no right really when it comes to parenting but if i was going to capture my ideal approach to parenting in one conversation that would be it not that i always managed to achieve that i would just like to point out you said she reminded you of tony collette in the sixth sense yes she also has that same tone with Cole. However, because the uh, the tone of the film is different, she's the stress that's on her is much more evident yeah. than. I mean, it's obvious that Annie has stress, and particularly well, she panics when, when she thinks her brother's dead. Exactly, but also when she goes out to get him <coughs> and he starts. Uh, rabbiting on about the giant yeah. mm. and she goes Hogarth I am not in the mood her yes. body language isn't saying I'm angry with you it's saying I am exhausted and you see in that that there is strain on her too but because the film has that innocence about it it's not quite so obvious Yeah. right before that scene uh, when the power is going out she gets home from work and when it, the lights go off, she doesn't do anything. She doesn't freak out. She doesn't make a noise. She just grabs her flashlight from her drawer and continues to look for Hogarth. Yeah. She is very organized, isn't she? She's not feeling the paranoia that uh, everyone else seems to be under. She can immediately assume it's communists who've turned off the uh, lights. <laughs> hey, plenty of other people, too. <laughs> I love that B movie, by the way. The uh, damn, a perfectly good brain. Wasted. Oh, <laughs> that whole sequence is wonderful. I especially love the way that uh, Hogarth's like, "You're gonna get it." Why the porpoise can communicate telepathically, Miss Mellon? If we can transplant at least fifteen percent of their brain matter into ours, we may be able to read minds. Hmm. 
darn. A perfectly good brain wasted. I think you've seen enough. How about a nightcap? Let's say my place. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, <laughs> mind reader. Darn. I seem to have left my keys in the lab. It, it just reminded me of obviously the, the tone is 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 uh, sweeter. But you know, when I was a kid, I watched stuff like Predator, and I was like, "Oh my god, Billy's gonna get killed horribly!" But I can't turn my eyes away. Yeah, it's the early Twilight Zone version of that. Yeah, so like Gomer Pyle would go see. <laughs> but yeah, and no, I like when when you're a kid. Ultimately, the the, uh, the certain powers that be would have us believe that kids would be traumatized by that kind of thing. No. Seriously, and, and unless a child has been somehow sheltered by those self-same people, um, there's a sort of a, a gruey fascination with people being horribly killed. And I love the fact that it's, you, you get the feeling that even though she told Hogarth to specifically not do these things, mm. she came home knowing full well that's probably what's going to happen. Yeah. So she just has that expirated look when she comes in and sees the thought made up, says, I knew he was going to do it, but... Maybe it's damage control. Maybe she's like, don't burn the house down. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I'm giving them ideas. So she's like, right, basically, right, well, what, what are the three things that I really, you know, I'd rather he didn't do, but they're like the, you know, the maximum that I would really take, put up with. Okay, let me just, okay, right, here's the rules. You must not do these three things, and he'll only do those three things. Max. <laughs> I mean, the worst he's doing is scaring himself for the night. And having True. terrible nutritional value. <laughs> and at least with those coded instructions, she manages to keep him in one place. Yeah. Oh, that uh, thing um, it, with the sticking cheese whiz into a Twinkie and like this, this explosion of, of horrible nitrates and toxins and... Uh, um, Cream. It was whipped cream, wasn't it? Oh, was it whipped cream? I thought it was whipped cream. Sorry, yeah. no. <laughs> I was about to say that. That sounds even worse. Oh, cheese whiz, that would be gross. <laughs> no, it's called a turbo Twinkie, and it's basically a way of uh, getting yourself into to have a sugar rush in about one gulp. Something only a child would think of. Or a genius. <laughs> Heston Blumenthal no, serving cream. them next week. Turbo Twinkies. It's, it's going to be hard now because uh, hostess have uh, not... Uh, live to the point where uh, if the zombies do get us that we could possibly search for Twinkies. I think they're still available but but uh, I think the license to make Twinkies has gone elsewhere now. Interesting useless fact. Twinkies do have an age. They do, yeah. They were also mentioned in Wally, which is set in the future and again that's another future that can't happen. When Hogarth believes that it's invaders from Mars and goes off into the forest, um Bradbird was talking about how in the um storyboard stage this was a really hard scene to convey to the execs to the studio and to say look we've got to have this build up here we're playing here with light and shadow there's this one light source that Hogarth's got it's extremely bright but everything around it is dark but there's also moonlight so that it's sort of you're seeing these shapes in a forest and it's scary but it's exciting and it's built up to you don't just immediately jump to the giant if you just jump straight into it and there's no build-up. On paper, that seems like watching it again, you'd be on safer territory because you're not making people wait for something that they've already got to. However, 
that's selling the world. That's building it up so that when you see it again, it's you're just reimmersing yourself in that. Ultimately, if something's done well, you will gladly watch it twice. When Hogarth is getting all of his gear ready, uh, as he walks out the door, there is a focus on a comic book called Red Menace, mm-hmm. which yeah. which uh, talks about the communism fears, but it also on the cover shows a boy fighting a giant robot. Yes, not to be confused with Atomo, who gets mentioned repeatedly. But mm-hmm. it's almost like because Hogarth has buried himself in comics. He's very au fait with the giant. It doesn't take him too long to go from fear to fascination. Yeah, he has that um, perfect thing of, I'm going to go out and find this robot. I have no idea what I'm going to do after that. I just know I'm going to go do this. I'll be needing a BB gun. (laughs) (laughs) We've already seen the giant once in a scene which was uh, emulated fairly neatly at the beginning of Pacific Rim when the uh, ship knocks into it. Uh, interestingly for scale, I don't know if you guys have seen the, the, the size of Gypsy Danger relative to things like Voltron and uh, Optimus Prime, but my god, Gypsy makes Optimus look like a midget. <laughs> Ser- I mean, actually, let's uh, put this in scale, folks. Well, he, he used a battleship as a sword, so <laughs> I, I've, got a, I've got some idea of how big he is. Well, I mean, people just tend to go giant fighting robots without any idea of... Uh, of, of Th- what there are tears. Yeah, there are, there are tears, too. <laughs> wow. To put I it, watch yeah. a lot of Japanese... I, lo- I watch a lot of anime mecha, so... Yeah. There are different tiers. <laughs> <laughs> just folks at home Google uh, Gypsy Danger scale. Mecha Godzilla comes up to her, her waist. Uh, Voltron to her mid- midriff, the sort of the orange arc reactor in her chest. Um, Wing Gundam is just about half level below the knee. Optimus Prime barely reaches her ankle. So all you folks going to see Michael Bay's latest opus, you're being shortchanged. <laughs> More ways than one. If you watch Transformers ten times, you will get the full Pacific Rim experience. <laughs> or oh no. God, is that before or after you dash your head out on a wall? Technically, technically, the Iron Giant is a mechanical kaiju. At least in terms of what the kaiju were being used for by the uh, interdimensional beings in um, Pacific Rim. He has been sent to destroy. I don't know if he was sent specifically to destroy the Earth or whether he went off course or not. But that's his purpose, it would appear. Now, that would be an interesting element for later Pacific Rim installments. Kaiju that resent being used the way they're being used and try to fight against it. Mm. No. Um, But, yeah, again, for scale, Hogarth fits in the giant's hand like um, that small boat at the beginning which crashed into the giant uh, would fit in Gypsy Danger's hand. That's how much bigger she is. Yeah, because remember at the very, very beginning she picks up and moves the boat across in exactly the same circumstances only there's an enormous knife-head kaiju there. One to think they had to be smart about the size because even though even though he's a giant robot yeah. they still have to set it up like this this it robot's been wandering around the forest the wilderness around the the town somehow hiding and nobody's actually seen him. Yeah, and you don't want to go in that forest. <laughs> it's full of robots. And Hogarth. I love the the shot you get of Hogarth seeing the uh, the giant for the first time. The fact that you just get his eyes right in front, yeah. like right behind him, and he just walks straight past him. Yeah. 
And when, uh, actually, before he gets to the power station, uh, you see the outline of the giant as he's pushed through the trees. Yeah. So, but in the darkness and the shadow, it's, again, it's luring you in. It's not making you, I mean, th- th- there's obviously the fear and trepidation, but it's something that you're like, I must know what this thing is. It's humanoid in nature, obviously, and I need to know. So, yeah, that's uh, some, some wonderful kind of, um, uh, tantalizing framing. So when the giant starts to munch on bits of the power station and then falls backwards into the cables, uh, we get some of the uh, the first proper uses of uh, um, some fairly astonishing sound design. It's it's not really until you start paying attention directly to it that uh, so much of that comes across. Just in the quiet moments when the giant moves its head and there's that kind of the 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 lofty slightly hollow very sort of high up sounding very kind of building sounding that the the iron movement there it's just like little quiet sort of moments i can't really i can't make the sound of iron but it's it's there and every movement of the giant has a little punctuation in audio kid in America. This is unbelievable. This is the greatest discovery since, I don't know, television or something. It makes it feel very physical and real yeah. and heavy. He actually sounds very quiet um, in, in yeah. relation to the real world. Like, mm. you'd think people would be able to hear in the small town giant steps going around. Yeah, thumping. Yeah. He should be humming to give you a sense of him being um, like a vast you know, machine that's constantly at work, but it's almost like... He's too low for them to hear. That was very much the impression that yeah. I got. Mm. It's it's this very, very low pitch, all the sounds that he makes, that you would kind of... You'd feel more than hear, and your brain would tell you it was something else. I was going to say he's less technology and more architecture. Mm. Or less machine, more human. It would have been very easy to overdo it on the sound design with him and just make oh, him yeah. just yeah. very just make it very cluttered and messy. But just that tiny little punctuated moments you were talking about really do sell it without making it just a cute. Just he's not just doing the kind of transformer stuff all over, the, all over the place. You were all thinking it, folks. Yeah, but um, Iron Man, I think, does this as well. Like uh, the movement of the suit, it's yeah. it's not. In your, you know, it's not loud. It's not, you know, at the forefront of the sound design uh, in the sound mix. But they're just small sounds when he moves his arm, just small shifts as the plates move across each other. Um, yeah, I, I, I do wonder if uh, the the guys behind uh, Iron Man actually watched this film and took some inspiration because a lot of the the movement of the suit kind of reminds me of the Iron Giant, just the and the sound design as well. Yeah. They wanted to stay true to Ted Hughes' book. Oh, actually, specifically now that you mention it, the Mark One is like a tubby, short Iron Giant. Yeah. Tubby, short Iron Giant is our Iron Maiden cover band. <laughs> <laughs> um, duck and cover in the classroom. 
this is a, a, an excellent moment for showing how, what well, a slightly chilling moment for showing how uh, the kids are sort of incorporating communist paranoia into their daily teasing routines and just sort of they're, they're not the, the kids are not terrified but they're very matter of fact about how uh, you know they're being watched and uh, nuclear war is almost inevitable and the the duck and cover bit really sticks with you because it's hilarious in the blackest way possible yeah a peaceful stay at home kind of day in a town very much like your own but then suddenly without warning but how does one survive an atomic attack? Dad, did you hear about crazy Mr. Stutz? He says his bull ran into a sea monster. I heard it was sunk by a meteor. No, no, no. It was a metal meteor. It ate his boat. My dad says it's just wasn't any of those things. What would you know about it, Poindexter? Hold on. Shh. Don't make me come over there. Hands over your head. Deep low to the ground. Time to duck and cover. The bombs are coming down. Duck and cover. It's about 50 or 60 feet high, and it only eats magical opulence, man. It's probably been sent by foreign enemies to take over the country. We should bomb it to smithereens before it does. A, a lot of propaganda, um, when it pertains to enemy nations, tend to exaggerate how uh, dangerous they are. But with nuclear weapons... Um, they underplay how yeah. destructive they are. So, like, oh, you 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 can hide under a table and you're fine. It's Just okay. Worry You'll about be the ceiling a... falling on your head. That's um, the only thing, really. And it's it's terrifying how little the public knew about how destructive the bomb was. But also, and and this comes from my own research of the period, like how little. The, the people, you know, behind the bombs actually understood how destructive they were. Because yeah. it was only around this time where they were, you know, finding out about fallout and, and radiation and like how, like, how long lasting the effects of these weapons were. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's really terrifying that they had created something so powerful that they felt the need to underplay how destructive it is. Um, for, for the general public, it, yeah, it's really chilling. What I find particularly scary is that they did not anticipate any member of the American public raising their hands, possibly even one of these schoolchildren, raising their hands and saying, don't the Russians have desks too? In which case, surely they'll be fine. In which case, why are we even bothering? A really good film could actually be made about the meetings that went on that eventually resulted in the duck and cover films. Yeah, yeah really could. This is not. This is a real thing, folks. This was not just a you know comedy for the film. There was a real duck and cover uh, series of informational films, and it's willful ignorance. Was the song real? Uh, no, the song was made up by. Um, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, they, that's they're really, it's really reminiscent, though, of all those educational films that Bart and Lisa get thrown at them. And yeah. the Simpsons. It really, have you seen the full version of this song that Teddy Newton wrote? 
I believe yes. it is in the special materials. It is. It, is. it gets it gets even funnier if you and more and, horrifying. And it's, it's contradictory as well because it's showing people like you know turning into skeletons and, and dying horribly, and it's like, oh, you'll still be okay. Yeah. Uh, if you um, well, you know, and then it says to get to a bomb shelter. It's like, well, hang on a second. I thought getting under a desk was all right. Yeah. So get to a bomb they, shelter. They close the door. Right. Ignore the knocking. They'll they'll figure it out <laughs> outside. <laughs> like, don't it's drink a bomb, milk. not a tornado. Yeah. Don't yeah. drink milk from the cows outside. <laughs> like just. Because they're radioactive. <laughs> just, yeah, it's, Teddy Newton is pretty, he works at Pixar now, he's pretty brilliant in general, but, uh, yeah. also very, very funny. That, that whole era, actually, that, that willful ignorance, uh, leads to, the, there's a lot of humor in the, the Fallout game series, and also, I suppose, uh, the Bioshock as well, where, where there's that, um, making a, a fun sort of, almost like, tiptoeing through the tulips of the most horrifying situation mankind has ever faced. Yeah, all the plasmid advertisements in Bioshock and yeah. and similarly in Fallout, all the uh, ads for various uh, weapons and equipment and stuff like that, all kind of just cute little cartoon drawings of stuff just being destroyed and eviscerated and burned. And yeah. yeah. It's almost like, I mean, if we don't stop laughing, we're going to go insane. I mean, something that I just recently learned is, you know, the Fallout Boy icon that everybody's used to? Yeah. The reason why he's holding his thumb up in a um, okay something is that's how you used to measure that you could tell that a mushroom cloud was how far it was from you. You'd use your the distance between your thumb and the uh, base of your hand to oh, tell geez. how far away it was from you, and they use that reference, and you just don't think about it until someone mentions it to you. Here for you now are some real, true, genuine excerpts from the real, true, actual Duck and Cover video, starring Bert the Turtle. Dum dum, beetle dum dum, beetle dum dum, beetle dum dum. There was a turtle by the name of Bert. And Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He's duck and cover. Duck and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Duck and cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with the Safety Commission of the National Education Association. First, you have to know what happens when an atomic bomb explodes. You will know when it comes. We hope it never comes, but we must get ready. It looks something like this. There is a bright flash, brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you've ever seen. If you are not ready and did not know what to do, it could hurt you in different ways. It could knock you down hard or throw you against a tree or a wall. It is such a big explosion, it can smash in buildings and knock signboards over and break windows all over town. But if you duck and cover like Bert, you will be much safer. You might be eating your lunch when the flash comes. Duck and cover under the table. Then, if the explosion makes anything in the room fall down, it can't fall on you. Getting ready means we will all have to be able to take care of ourselves. The bomb might explode when there are no grown-ups near. Paul and Patty know this, and they are always ready to take care of themselves. 
Here they are on their way to school on a beautiful spring day. But no matter where they go or what they do, they always try to remember what to do if the atom bomb explodes right then. It's a bomb. Duck and cover. Paul and Patty know what to do. Paul covered the back of his head so that he wouldn't be burned. And Patty covered herself with the coat she was carrying. They knew how to duck and cover. They acted right away when the flash came. Tony knew what to do. Notice how he keeps from moving or from getting up and running? This family knows what to do, just as your own family should. They know that even a thin cloth helps protect them. Even a newspaper can save you from a bad burn. But the most important thing of all is to duck and cover yourself, especially where your clothes do not cover you. Duck and cover! That's the first thing to do. Duck and cover. The next important thing to do after that... Remember what to do, friends. Now tell me right out loud. What are you supposed to do when you see the flash? Duck and cover. Duck and cover. Speaking of Cold War paranoia, Chris McDonald as Kent Mansley, the most horrible fellow. I've seen in a film for quite some time. Uh, Chris McDonald's obviously uh, made a career out of playing shits, and uh, he, he lends just the right amount of swagger. And uh, the, the character I compared him most to was Biff, in terms of the fact that he's hilarious, but he can be actually very threatening when uh, um, when he himself feels under threat. When we were talking about Beauty and the Beast, we mentioned that uh, Gaston was mm. a great antagonist because um, he, he kind of feels like a character we've all met in real life. Yeah. And I kind of feel the same way about Kent Mansley. I think we've all met someone who's that paranoid and that prejudiced and mm. that racist. Um, it's It's a kind of... I, I, evil seems like a, a simple word, but I'm going to use it. It's it's the kind of evil that we've all encountered in our, in our daily lives. Mm. Like it, it's negative uh, negative feelings generated by ignorance and fear, basically. He seems defined by the fact that uh, he can get a little bit stressed out, and he'll be you know super patronizing or um, uh, you know show that he's becoming irate, but also still try to be in charge. And maybe even try to be what psychopaths consider to be warm. But then you keep chipping away at that. And like when he gets into that little spat with the telephone that won't go back on the receiver, you see how easy it is to just make him crazy. And uh, it, that's the bit that's kind of scary about him because uh, he can find it within himself to interrogate a child later on. And drug one. D- drug a child. He goes insane to the point where he orders the uh, airstrike on the town he's standing in. He's he's ruled by his own fear and his own pomposity because he's trying to keep control the whole time. It's almost like he was the milk monitor at school, and they just you know he let it get go to his head, and then suddenly he ended up seeking a career in middle management, G man. I'd say he qualifies as what I would term. I suppose the non-fictional modern equivalent to evil, which is a sort of self-interestedly abusive. Mm. His actions towards Hogarth 
particularly in that interrogation scene, are a lot more terrifying than they may initially appear, at least to me, because of the threat of having Hogarth removed from his mother. Now, that is one of the most terrifying things that you can tell a child is going to happen. Mm. And it's often used as a form of control by abusive parents or guardians. If you don't behave, you will be taken away. If you don't do X, Y, Z... I will tell the police and they will come and take you away from me. Is that what you want to happen? It, you know, in that form of, of sort of manipulation that that is what ends up programming children to behave the way they do out of fear later in life. Would... And I don't doubt that Kent has had a lot of that kind of behaviour directed towards him and that's why he is the way he is. Would, if you don't behave, I will send you to boarding school be a similar threat? I would say so, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're, you're threatening to basically upend a child's entire existence if they don't do what you want them to do. And if particularly, I mean, it's it's a horrible thing to say, even if you mean it, but particularly if you're just using it as a way to force a child to do something that they really don't want to do out of nothing but fear and terror of an empty threat. Yeah, That's about as bad as it gets to me. You and also... Uh, Hogoff's already lost a, a parent, so yeah. for him that's yeah. even worse. So it's because, using that yeah. loss, yeah. But also, yeah. if you if you look at the idea of Kent behaving like this out of his own fear and his own reactions, you could compare that to the way the giant goes into gun mode when he's being threatened. The giant makes a conscious decision, and obviously we'll talk about this later on, but he makes a conscious decision not to respond to those, in his case... Uh, electronic, in the case of a human, chemical impulses to react with violence and aggression when threatened. Kent mm. makes no such attempt. He just mm. gives into it. Uh, you get the dif- distinct feeling that um, Kent didn't get his job by being a good soldier or a good person. He, it doesn't seem like the sort of person who's driven by duty. He's the sort of person he wanted a cushy got job hmm. with very little responsibility but a monicum of power that he could hold over people. And this situation has just brought to light the the worst parts of, like, the repercussions of putting someone like that into his position. Because you got to remember, he was sent out just to investigate, uh, just to find out, and he was he was very dismissive about the whole thing oh this is a small town it doesn't matter but as soon as something happens to him personally that's when he's invested and he takes it from one to ten immediately yeah Yeah. he goes from skepticism to belief and then fear in seconds yeah it's um it's what sharon and i have said about uh the idea of people who resolutely refuse to believe in aliens until there's one standing in front of them and then they go from belief to fear or possibly trying to work out how to exploit it. Yeah, yeah it, it would have been very easy for them to, given that the film has a pretty pronounced anti-gun message anyway, it would have been very easy for that, them to extend that to the military as well and make the military or a, a military yeah. character a villain in this story. But, they, I mean, they don't actually do that because the military yeah. characters are actually quite reasonable. It is Kent who is this avatar of fear and paranoia that is made the villain. It's that... It is that constant fear that will drive people to do the most absurd, ultimately self-destructive things that is the actual villain in the, of the movie. 
ultimately members of the American government lied to the people. Somebody has to take the fall on that in this film. And it's Kent. Somebody very self-interested. To do a film about how Duck and Cover got made, you could look below that. There's got to have been people who were under the impression that this is a beautiful lie to tell. If you keep people happy, they will gladly hold on to the possibility of not being in harm's way, as opposed to having to live with the madness of we're all in very terrible danger. Oh, God, I can't bear that notion that, that there are people who think that they can know but everybody else should be deprived yeah. of the right to choose whether they know or not. But I, I don't believe that it would be right to portray those people as monstrous, just that they are deciding for everybody else's greater good that this is the lie to tell. I think it's horrendous and ethically fucked, but um, yeah. that's just my perspective on things. That is another thing, though, that I think falls under my the end does not justify the means. Yeah. Mm. Ansley, you call me at home for this? I don't understand, sir. It, it, it ate my car. And you saw this happen. Well, I didn't actually see it. it went off into the woods. So you don't have any evidence. Uh, but, but, sir, I, I've got an eyewitness. An eyewitness with a concussion. This thing... <laughs> this thing is a menace. It, 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 it tore up a power station. It, it caused a train wreck. What did? Tell me again, Mansley, and this time... Listen to yourself. <sighs> A giant metal monster. <laughs> Please, sir. I've got a feeling about this one. That's lovely, Kent. But let me try to explain how this works. If you told me you'd found, say, uh, a giant footprint, I might send over an expert to make a plaster cast of it. Hell, you get me a photograph of this thing and I could probably get some troops over there. But you tell me you've got a feeling. All right, then. Fine. You want evidence? I'll get you evidence. And when I do, I'm going to want a memo distributed. That sounds swell, I'm going to want that memo carbon copy and Anyway, got pretty heavy here. There's a bit... Um, when in... do we ever not? Yeah, of course we do. <laughs> the, the bit where uh, Kent is um, developing... Hogarth's pictures. Uh, he's actually set up his own bedroom in uh, Annie's house as a dark room because they they were going to have him go to um, you know an, a, a FBI headquarters to develop them, but they wanted to keep him in the home, so they actually uh, have Annie the call out. It's the bathroom. Bathroom. Sorry, but the last picture he develops is Hogarth grinning into the camera. Hogarth took that one by accident and didn't know the giant was standing directly behind him. He's not going, hey, this is me with the giant. Here's some proof. He didn't know the giant was there. And, of course, he couldn't because um, it's not a digital camera. He can just check back. When I was younger, I never picked up on that. I'm like, when did that happen? The creepy thing is, though, he then falls asleep for a while after that. You know, he dozes off. And the giant's still in that same position when he comes around again. So the giant just sort of stood there and went, hmm. He was curious. Yeah, it it helps punctuate the fact that he, he was just literally standing there and this boy was just down there so he decided to watch him for a while yeah. till he got hungry. I think of the giant as like a big dog. Like, at, at the beginning. At yeah. the beginning. As, um, there's that part where uh, the giant bobs his head and then that's the moment that Hogarth like draws later yeah. and he's excited about having his own giant robot. It's it's only after he does, uh, sees that he has uh, thinking processes like uh, on the train yeah. tracks and yeah. desires in the barn 
that's that's when he tells Dean that uh, he's a little Phrasing. Kid. Sorry. <laughs> he had desires in the barn. <laughs> oh. This is the last time you make me out a fool, Len Trexler. You want to play me hard? Phrasing. Well, then you better nut up. Phrasing. Because I've swallowed just about as much as I can take from you. Hey, phrasing. Carry on, though, my sorry. Uh, it's, uh, like, after being around the giant a little more, he decided when describing him to Dean that he was a little kid. Yeah. You're right about the, the whole OCD thing on the train tracks. That's one of those uh, things that makes me believe that, well, there's... There's a lot of unanswered questions, which I love the fact that they are unanswered, and we can infer a possibility upon them. The bash on the head that uh, the giant receives, I think he, he um, like a, 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 a small meteorite bashed into his uh, noggin, gave him the old bump there. Because it appears to have reset him on some level, there are interesting parallels with Terminator 2 here. On many levels, this is Terminator 2 for kids with exactly the same messages in there. It even ends with, because if a machine, an iron giant, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. And he doesn't bloody say that. It doesn't hammer it into you. Uh, it has the same ethos on nuclear war. It has the same kids saying, you just can't go around killing people. Because you just can't. Uh, and, yeah, in many ways, John is like a slightly more jaded version of Hogarth. This is something that was taken out of the theatrical version of uh, Terminator 2, and it's the film is the poorer for it. In case anyone for some reason hasn't seen the extended version of T2, do. The T-800 requests that he has his chip removed from his head and then put back in again to reset his learning circuit so that he can actually basically start to absorb and imitate humanity in a way that he wouldn't have done had he remained on the same course. The giant appears to be just a moving, living gun that gets set down with a bunch of other giants to destroy planets. And because it seems to react to uh, aggression, I don't know whether it would just set down and immediately start attacking, but it's definitely got that defense mechanism hardwired in. But the idea is, because of the bump, he's blanked, he's learning, and it suddenly becomes the whole nurture versus nature debate. Hmm. And he learns and absorbs humanity from hanging around with us. I, I think that the, the genius of the film uh, not revealing or fully revealing uh, his origins and who sent him there and mm. what his true purpose is, is I, I think like it's part of the, one of the stronger messages in the film. It's about like it doesn't matter where you came from or what society or what, you know, what you were intended to be, what your parents intended you to be. You choose who you want to be. Um, and the Iron Giant chooses exactly what he, uh, who he wants to be. He yeah. wants to be Superman or aspire to be that for the people that he cares about. Um, so the fact that it doesn't reveal his origins, it, it, I think that's genius because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like it shouldn't yeah. matter who, you know, where any of us have come from, like what was originally expected of us. It, what matters is who we choose to be. Yeah. And he has extremely expressive eyes as well. The, uh, because they couldn't, um, actually warp and change the eyes, uh, they are given shields, which still fit in with, uh, his, 
biology, as it were. It's uh, they're they're there to protect his his eyes, but they're also there to emote for him. And he's got one of the uh, these incredibly expressive faces. Yeah, it it was ingenious the way they used that concept, especially that moment when he thinks Hogarth's dead. Yeah. You you get that purely human reaction of the eyes sort of flickering in his mouth his jaw just moving up and down trying to form a word but doesn't know what he's trying to say and the fact that they managed that with just essentially lend not lens shutters and a hinged jaw is is phenomenal completely different from some franchises where they put metallic faces on robots <laughs> he has actually much more like a muppet in a lot of ways, because in the yes, with most Muppets, yes. you've got you, in most Muppets, you have even less. You probably don't even have eyelids. You've just got mm. a mouth and body movement language to communicate, and they somehow still manage to make them act in in ways that you totally understand and relate. And I, I don't know, we I don't know, animators look to the Muppets a lot. I think just in being learning yeah. to uh, communicate a complex emotion with the simplest tools available, and I expect they probably looked to some reference on the Muppets as well for this. Yeah, that would stand to reason, actually. I'm trying to think of other things that uh, this guy actually reminds me of. I, I was going to mention uh, GLaDOS and Wheatley from Portal 2. <laughs> yeah. When I looked up Sputnik, I saw Wheatley actually floating through space. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I have to imagine uh, the animators at Valve looked at this film because yeah. they're employing a lot of the same techniques. Uh, you know, having subtle emotions expressed with things that aren't even really, with Wheatley especially, there, he has these flaps on the side of his, uh, sphere that he moves around. And, and there's no, like, you know, human connection, like, thing that you can connect to, like a human body part or what have you. But because it's just that simple movement that allows him to express so much. Mm. Um, yeah, and and the same here with the Iron Giant. Like the teeth is really interesting. I think like wh- whether they choose to show the teeth or not inside the giant mouth, uh, gi- uh, Iron Giant's mouth. Like sometimes they can be used to express aggression. Mm. Sometimes it's just oh, I'm eating something yummy. I'm enjoying this. You know, or it's a Dean. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best moment. His name is Dean. We like Dean. <laughs> it's a it's a simple simple touch, just like the shields for the eyes. But it expresses mm. so much when the animators know what they're doing. Everybody say Superman. Everyone at home do the same thing. Now try to do the same thing with the, just a hinged jaw and not being able to purse your lips in any way. <laughs> How they managed to get him to say that at least twice and have that still come across totally naturally, especially at an extremely emotional moment. Mm-hmm. It's a masterstroke. You could, although this kind of punctures the humanity of him a little bit, but you could interpret that as the words he forms are through an electronic voice box mm-hmm. and that opening the hinge of his jaw simply allows the sound to come out. Yeah, yeah that make, that makes sense to me. I I always felt like um, the the Iron Giant was imitating Hogarth the way he communicated. So yeah. the Iron Giant could simply just open his mouth and a voice would come out. But because he's learning from Hogarth, he uh, he learns to use his jaw as part of communication. 
Yeah, because you get that initial scene where he's completely mimicking Kogarth. Yeah. And he, he doesn't say point to the rock and says rock. He picks up a giant boulder and holds it like Kogarth was and says rock. There's a bit in Transformers Prime, I don't know if you remember this, Jerome, when uh, Miko and uh, Jack are in the quarry and Miko uh, complaining, uh, we could have been at a rock concert, instead we just got rock, and she holds out her hand for a brief second, and then it cuts forward to Jack talking, and it's like, hang on, was that an Iron Giant reference? <laughs> but uh, we'll I'll talk about that a lot more when we do talk about Transformers Prime, but Bulkhead specifically, there mm. has been a lot of influences moving forward. Also, the big daddies in Bioshock, for some reason, a little bit of their melancholy seems to come from this guy yeah definitely that sort of tragic sort of figure mm-hmm. and backwards uh, they mentioned the tin woodsman on the uh, uh commentary but uh, that was to suggest somebody with a fairly fluid face which was expressive because it was just a man with a face painted silver but tiktok i don't know if he was in any way an influence but from uh return to Oz, anyone seen mm-hmm. that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. He's basically a, a robotic protector and has that same kind of, uh, you know, I, I try to help as best I can sensibility to him. You know, he would lay down his life for Dorothy. It's, it's the amazing thing that animators do. They take the way the human brain tries to interpret, like, personality and emotion and tone mm-hmm. and manages to put it, put it, to create it using things that you just wouldn't think of. But, like, when Josh... Josh talks about how Wheatley has his flaps like you're immediately interpreting someone like doing hand gestures while talking and everything yeah. and it, also the giant's modular so he can break into various different bits all of which seem to have a personality of their own That the hands that uh, especially when they're prowling around the house curiously looking at stuff are more like puppies just enormous investigative puppies Especially when um, Hogarth points out the town of Rockwell and he starts galloping towards it. Yeah. Just, you know, it's just so desperate to, to meet people and, and have fun. It's uh, almost like Hogarth yanking back on his leash and going, no, down. Watch out for the cow. Yeah. There is something particularly childlike about that reaction in him, though, because if you look at the way he, he is with Hogarth and with Dean, these are the people who, at least temporarily, have basically been assigned as his carers. Mm. And he participates in whatever activity they demand of him it's a bit more subtle with dean but he kind of connects with him because the giant expresses what he perceives as an interest in his art and can help him with that but basically the giant is doing what dean wants him to do Mm. so that he can hang out with him he then jumps to doing whatever hogarth asks him to do because it means he can hang out with him he's he's very much uh, got that blank slate sensibility to begin with and it's the people he's around that build that in him we've we've got no way of knowing whether it's in the giant's initial instinct to be compassionate to be gentle to not want to hurt things it's hogarth that teaches him that as far as we can see uh, dean also could have been uh, really overplayed he could this was um uh Hang on, Lyra's coming downstairs. Come in. Be quick. Oh, hey, Lyra. Oh, hang on, just come here for a second. Oh, what did you think of the Iron Giant? I thought the Iron Giant was very good, a very good movie, and. What did you like best about it? Well, 
It was like the Iron Giant was scary, but he was gentle. Yeah. You found out later. Yeah, yeah. I did. Did it make you sad at the end? Yeah, quite sad. Uh, but at the real, real end, I wasn't quite sad. Hmm. Because he could make himself... Um, Again. Yeah. If he hadn't been able to pull himself back together, would you want to watch it again and again and again? Or would you be too sad to watch it again? I'd watch it again and again and again. Even if it was just sad? Do I want to feel this sad again every time? Is it a bit of an emotional ringer? No, I'd actually watch it over and over again. Yeah. Just because it's a wonderful kind of sweet, sad moment. Mm-hmm. But if it was just all sort of happy ending, everything's fine, it probably wouldn't have been so important of a movie, would it? Mm-hmm. Nah. Don't freak out, don't freak out. Put your hands on the edge and tie them to your table so you don't explode. Do you mean duck and cover? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You go do your thing. Kev. She's awesome. What do you need us for? Yeah. <laughs> this can't last forever, Hogarth. We gotta tell somebody about him. Uh, you worry too much. Hey, Dean! Watch this! Alright, we're watching, we're watching. This one's for professionals only! Bunzai! <laughs> Come on in! The, the, the water's great! <laughs> no thanks. You weenie! Come on in! It's really, really refreshing! What? You too? You big baby! enough fun for one day Dean could have been overplayed this was uh, the beat generation and obviously it's just before hippies so he could have been very much kind of you know the government all liars man he could have been full on Dennis Hopper uh, and it would have felt like uh, an adult I suppose manipulating Hogarth and forcing him uh, into a, uh, another uh, mode of thought just uh, swinging him to another extreme Instead, one major lesson comes across, which is, you know, you be who you choose to be, and that Hogarth teaches to the giant. So, effectively, Dean is just passing on this message, and the giant, by action, effectively teaches that to the people of Rockwell. I think Dean does have a little bit of that. Who was it was talking about adults having a layer of cynicism that they've accumulated? Yeah, it's Josh. That was me. <laughs> Josh, yeah. It, what Josh was talking about, the the cynicism that sometimes comes through in adults, Dean has a little bit of that. It's not massive, and I suspect that his 
creativity that comes through in his artwork is part of what keeps him relatively childlike by comparison to somebody like Kent. Mm. But he is a little bit more conditionally accepting of the giant than Hogarth is. As far as Hogarth is concerned, the giant is a person and he remains a him and it doesn't matter what he does or if he behaves in a way that is that the behavior is unacceptable, Hogarth never wavers in his acceptance of the giant himself. Dean, when the giant first goes into gun mode and Dean sees him and is obviously very terrified for Hogarth and suddenly becomes very protective of him, he starts referring to the giant as, he, well, he calls him hardware, he calls him a machine. And... It's it's obvious that that is a reaction out of fear, but it yes. does mean that for that brief moment, he drops that acceptance of, yes, you are a person, or you are at least a sentient being that I can relate to. And he kind of distances himself from the giant in order to, I suppose, be able to protect Hogarth. Yeah. I would say the, the major difference between uh, Dean's fear and Kent's fear is that Dean's fear is completely rational. Mm. He has just seen the Iron Giant demonstrate how destructive he can be. Yeah. And I, I think it makes sense that his first instinct is like, get away from him, Hogarth. Look what he just did. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, anyone would react that way. Uh, Hogarth's only being defensive of the, uh, the Iron Giant because he spent so long with him. He's seen the, you know, the good in him. He's seen the soul of the giant. Dean has, you know, had some interactions with him. He's seen him make art and what have you, but he's still, you know, all the way through that, I think Dean is still, like, suspicious. It's like, okay, I don't completely trust this thing. I don't know where he's come from. I don't know what his motivation is. But I'm going to trust him as long as he demonstrates that he's safe. The moment he demonstrates he's no longer safe, I don't trust him anymore. Uh, and I think something that plays into that is the fact that because his works of art are made of metal and machinery that he's put together, he, he has that thing of his mind where he's putting emotions into it's metal but at the end of the day some part of him has to accept the fact that it's still just metal and that comes through when when it comes to a head where he sees that happening he has to he he tries to relate to Hogarth that he's trying to tell him that he he's a machine at this moment in time like he may not want to do it but he's just triggered something that you have no idea what to do with but he does, um, when he realises that the giant was only reacting to the presence of the gun, albeit that it's a toy gun, he does kind of drop that, which I think yeah. reinforces that idea of his reaction being a, a rational one, that yeah. it's, it's born of observation and responding to the situation. As soon as new evidence appears and the situation changes, he changes his reaction. Kent Mansley and Dean are two opposite characters in relationship to Hogarth. Uh, for Dean, Dean is the father figure. It's it's what uh, Hogarth can become, mm. uh, the greatest parts. And then Kent Mansley is the complete opposite. It's what, what Hogarth will never become, uh, fear and understanding. 
Yeah. Yeah. He does try to be a, a kind of a false or forced, should I say, father figure though. That scene where it's all the little jump cuts of him calling him Tiger and Sport, Scout, <laughs> Champ and all yeah. the rest of it. It's, it's like that kind of, again, that forced, gritted teeth adult who really has no comprehension of how children think or how they react and yet is trying to ingratiate himself with him. Yeah, because yeah, you have that first scene of introduction to Dean where he's he's the guy who gets the squirrel up his pants and instead of just breaking out and talking, like telling off this kid, he tries to help him, like tries to hide it because he's, he's coming to that thing, I, I've been there where I'd like a little... I've like, been like there, my pet. squirrel's climbed up a few pant legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you have a feeling where like he had something his mom probably didn't want him to have and he yeah. tried to hide it and he's just, he's approaching... He just said that to Hogarth. He has to practice what he preaches. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Dean also demonstrates uh, a, a parenting technique that I always think is uh, clever, is that he lets Hogarth learn his lesson the hard way, mm. as long as it's a lesson that's perfectly safe for him <laughs> to learn. So the coffee... Coffeezilla. Uh, he he knows exactly what's going to happen if he lets Hogarth have coffee. Yeah. But he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna let him have it because I want I want him to experience exactly why he shouldn't be drinking this at his age firsthand. Yeah, because um, yeah, I imagine Hogarth. The scene that they don't show is Hogarth crashing yeah. afterwards, <laughs> and we're oh god, why did I do that to myself? But the um, coffee scene, sorry. <laughs> The, the coffee scene is important because it gets some character history in there, too. It, it could have just been a joke, but it shows why Hogarth is teased and why he's kind of smarter than everybody else, but yeah. at the same time not. It's it's a uh, two-way street. Uh, yeah, he's, t- he's telling the complete truth at that point. There's no uh, societal constructs holding it back. He's just blurting it out like a drunk. Yeah, it's similar to uh, it's similar to the situation his mom found him in the woods, where he's so hyped up that he just needs to let everything out at that yeah. moment in time. I'm gonna have some coffee. What do you want? Some uh, milk or uh, what? Milk? Coffee's fine. Yeah, I drink it. I'm hip. I don't know. This is espresso. You know, it's like coffeezilla. I said I'm hip. She moved me up a grade because I wasn't fitting in, so now I'm even more not fitting in. I was getting good grades, you know, like always. So my mom says, you need stimulation. And I go, no, I'm stimulated enough right now. That's for sure. So she goes, uh-uh, you don't have a challenge. You need a challenge. So now I'm challenged, all right? I'm challenged to hold on to my lunch money because of all the big mooses who want to pound me because I'm a shrimpy dork who thinks he's smarter than them. But I don't think I'm smarter. I just do the stupid homework. If everyone else just did the stupid homework, they could move up a grade and get pounded too. Is there any more coffee? Which, to be fair, kids are like that most yeah. of the time anyway. You don't <laughs> yeah. have to add caffeine. <laughs> Speaking of um, teachers, uh, Cloris Leachman uh, plays uh, Mrs. Tensage, uh, Hogarth's school teacher. Yay. She, this was one of her last roles, I believe, as well. Uh-huh. No, she's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of Doris Grau. My testicles means more iron. You know, uh, Cloris Leachman was uh, in Young Frankenstein, and she, actually, she was the grandma in The Croods. Oh, yeah, cool. Which is also an excellent film, and folks should see. Yes, but uh, yeah, she plays uh, for for one line, Mrs. Tensage, uh, the, uh, the the teacher. Um, any more on Dean? Anybody? I I love the the fact the music that they use they use that beatnik 
jazzy, mm. those little interludes whenever he's on screen, when it's just like focused on him, it it just creates that whole feeling of he, you you just know he's that beatnik sort of person, mm. and the fact that Hogar's always trying to be cool around him just it it accentuates that fact. Yeah, but also they, as we mentioned before, they don't overplay it as well. Oh no. They, it's just a facet of who he is, and mm. and he and he's relaxed about it. He's not like it would have been so easy to just have this exa- exaggerated caricature oh, yeah. of a fifties beatnik, but instead he it's just you know it's a part of his identity in the same way that you know uh, popular culture geek culture is a part of our identity. Mm. So um, yeah, I, I think they they did it subtly and they did it and they employed it when they when it felt appropriate instead of just ramming it down our throats. Thinking about it, it's just, it's a shame that Harry Connick Jr. and Jennifer Aniston aren't in more animated films. They're both exceptionally good in this. Mm-hmm. And especially uh, Aniston, considering her, uh, her act, her, most of her film roles have tended to be romances or romantic comedies or dramas, and most of them have not been particularly fantastic. This may actually be one of her best on-screen performances, albeit brief. The colours of Maine when they're doing the diving are extraordinary. I can't... I mean, this is like uh, Disney during their heyday levels of, uh, of, of lush. It's uh, it, it, it obviously resplendent to Bambi, especially around this point, because they're about to meet the deer. At this stage, everything's warm, everything's... Um, everything seems to be sort of bathed in sunset all the time, so it's uh, there's a sort of a wonderful gra- browns and greens and, um, uh, and, and a sort of golden light. And, Childlike innocence. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very Rockwell palette in general yeah. in, this, in this film. And at the same time, when it when it cuts to winter, just sort of the, the, as soon as the army actually turn up, it's uh, the, the sort of greyness starts to set in, and um, and then when it starts to snow, it's obviously at a very symbolic time. That actually made me think a little bit of the the seasonal structure in Game of Thrones. But winter is coming. You will. You know, they have this thing where basically the summers can last years and then chances are the longer the summer is, the longer the, the following winter will be. Mm-hmm. So... We're talking they, nuclear fallout here. Possibly so. <laughs> but the the idea of children of summer, which is a phrase that's used uh, in Game of Thrones to talk about... Uh, people who have never experienced a winter who who figuratively speaking have never experienced true hardship and that kind of that's what makes the adult is understanding hardship and what you will have to do in order to survive and you could argue that it going seeing that transition from autumn to winter is kind of hogarth coming to realize what this situation really means oh, yeah. mm. And now I think it's probably a good time to mention Vin Diesel's acting. This is his best performance. And I think it will always be his best performance. It's, um, he's subtle and quiet and heartfelt and the intonation and it's not entirely apparent when you're watching for the first time that you're actually hearing a person. He embodies a machine. It's been obviously mixed with various other, um, sound effects, but, uh, it really comes through when Hogarth is harmed and he believes him to be dead. That's, it's an absolutely heart-wrenching moment. And they hold back a lot in this film. They don't 
go for the melodrama. They go for um, quiet, introverted moments. It's, it's yeah. an introvert's film. Maybe that's why it's not hugely popular, like Inspector Gadget, the extrovert film. It's this fascinating, is- isn't it, to how, how a film made by people who don't give a shit can be can rake in a hundred million dollars more than this. Yeah. Well, I, I think if you asked a lot of people who bought tickets for Inspector Gadget back in the day whether they uh, regretted that decision, I think uh, the vast majority would say yes. Let's say yes. Let's say I yeah. remembered watching the cartoon and it being great fun. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. But um, going back to Vin Diesel, um, <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's easy to forget considering... Vin Diesel hasn't made the the best choices recently. Mm. Um, or back then. He, yeah. Or in the meantime. <laughs> yeah. That the he, that <laughs> he is a, a really good actor. Yeah. Um, mm. And he's demonstrated that in this role uh, and in Pitch Black. Um, he and his, you know, his his ability to manipulate his voice, like that voice, is his greatest asset. Right. Like, oh and yeah. He, and th- this film is demonstrating it. He he has a he has a mastery over his own vocal cords that very few actors have. Yeah. And um, I just wish, I wish he was in more great movies. Mm. And maybe Groot will be a return to form, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's what I'm expecting. Um, Interestingly enough, the first choice for voice casting for the giant, unfortunately he was unavailable at the time, was Peter Cullen. Iron Giants transform and roll out. But I don't want to downplay uh, Vin Diesel's abilities as an actor. He, ha- I mean, even Dominic Toretto is uh, it's an excellently measured performance in in the, especially the first one, and at times in the, the, the later the Fast and Furious films. But it, it's possibly just because this one's so slight, and because this one doesn't use his face, and because this one is all about little breaths and using as few words to get across yeah. a wealth of meaning. It- it's not very often that you'll, it, given the awesome, incredible, like booming, low, gravelly voice that he has, it is very, very rare. And I, I guess there's no other instance in which he has been asked to play a very gentle character. Yeah. And the giant is an incredibly gentle, naive character. So being able to lend his really deep, rasping voice to this character that is not a badass driver or it's like stuntman or just just some incredibly powerful hero character. He's just a naive, gentle giant. It's, or Space Conan. It's playing, yeah, it's playing very much against type for him, and it's a type that actually works very, very well. It's very yeah. effective. Played correctly, and especially depending on his uh, decisions in later life, he could be this generation's Ron Perlman. He's definitely got the voice. Mm. Like Ron, both Ron Perlman and Vin Diesel have that in common. They have voices that immediately uh, command attention. That scene with uh, where Hogarth is lying there and you do get this incredibly understated reaction from the giant. One thing I love about that scene is how it leads on from the scene with the deer in 
more than the obvious ways. Yeah. There's the, the fact that he prods Hogarth very gently and that Hogarth moves in the same way that the deer moved, which is kind of what makes him realize that, or, well, he thinks that Hogarth is dead. But then if you look, he goes to pick him up and then he doesn't because when he went to pick up the deer, Hogarth, Hogarth said stopped. not to. Yeah. And he's, he's remembering that and replicating that moment in his mind. That's an absolutely incredible moment. Um, listening to the commentary, Brad Bird said that uh, Bambi always annoyed him because uh, they got to the point where uh, Mrs. Bambi was uh, killed and then they move on to April showers almost immediately and he was angry at the birds because they're sort of... Actually, it's, it's something else, like spring is here or something along those lines, some awful song to sort of take your mind off what's just happened and they didn't dwell on it and it didn't really have any major impact on Bambi or the rest of proceedings. Let's sing a gay little spring song This is the season to sing So I'd like to suggest that we all do our best And warble the song of God's spring Parodied mercilessly in a series of unfortunate events Bursting in bloom all the flowers are so It's a lovely, lovely spring The death of the deer in this it was almost like him redressing that balance and going, no, this one's going to stay with the giant and it's going to have an impact. I wonder, Dan, if I might have found a kindred spirit there in Mr. Bird. I expect we would I'd enjoy bitched. Mr. Bird's company in general. <laughs> mm. Other folks, I bitched long and hard about this exact point um, without knowing Brett Bird's take on it when we were do- talking about Bambi. Coming soon in a digital drift near you. Thanks. I think I'm feeling better now. Much, much better. Beautiful. Hey, look. It's a deer.
um, just another thing that I really love about this scene, um, and actually uh, in form scenes uh, early in this, uh, earlier than this as well, is that um, I've heard tell um, fr- from various sources uh, that I've read that um, anger is usually an emotion that is informed by another deeper emotion, mm-hmm. uh, uh, another deeper negative emotion. And um, here, uh, the Iron Giant's anger is triggered by sorrow, by grief. Yeah. Um, but you also see that in uh, other characters, Kent Mansley. His anger is driven by fear. And this idea that anger and violence is always triggered by a negative emotion that you're not addressing, yeah. that you're not confronting, is uh, is something that they don't, they don't draw uh, much attention to, but it, it, it's a, a small um, ingredient they add to this film that I think uh, adds a lot to um, all the other, um, d- you know, complex things that are going on in this film. Well, it fits in perfectly with the the nature versus nurture debate, if you think about it, because yeah. when when we're born, there are many things that don't come to form part of our personality until the other people around us start to have an input but we are hardwired for self-preservation so the first instinct is food we need to eat we need to sustain ourselves and we need in some way to protect this extremely vulnerable body that we have that can do virtually nothing and eating is the first thing that the giant goes for he's that's his main impulse initially is to find food but the uh the anger that is often one of the first things that that babies manifest when their needs are not met is a reaction born out of that self-preservation the aggression as as it's portrayed in this film actually appears to be kind of infectious the idea is that when one person shows it to another it replicates and multiplies and it just gets worse and worse and it almost seems to require somebody who's been inoculated to aggression or somebody who is effectively able to control that to show everybody else how to calm the fuck down. I think the infection analogy works really well because you've only got to see, uh, you know, certain conversations on the internet to realize how infectious anger can be. Mm. You can start off with a slight misunderstanding and then it just blows up and then 20 people get involved in a discussion that was only between two people. And it only Um, flared up in the first place because 140 characters is too few to convey your thoughts without being snippy. And... um, and, you know, there was a time where, um, in my more fo- foolish years, that I would get involved in certain arguments on Twitter. I've, I've realized now that it's actually much more constructive to not get involved on Twitter at all and talk to people privately, calmly, and in a non-patronizing way, and via email where you have more than 140 <laughs> characters <laughs> to express yourself. And I think that that that's kind of the approach Hogarth is taking, not that he's email... 
whatever. The approach that Hogarth is taking is he's talking, not shouting, yeah. um, uh, which is the way I wish most internet conversations about morally grey subject matter would uh, occur, but... Um, Unfortunately, that's not the case. But yes, I, I think that's a really important message to convey, that you can't fight negativity with more negativity. You need to pacify it. Yeah, There's also... Sorry, go on, Sharon. No, 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 you go, Jerome. Uh, I've talked plenty. Because that's exactly what Kent does to the military. Yeah. He riles them up with his paranoia and his, his crazed theories and speeches, and he gets... He gets these rational men to start firing artillery into a small town. Now, normally you, you'd think that because they're, they know people are around, even if they perceive it as a threat, you wouldn't fire a rocket into the middle of a town centre where loads of people are gathered. But because Kent has got these people thinking, oh, this is, we have to do whatever it takes to get rid of it, even to the point where he convinced, even though the general um, is planning to do it in a far off area, he's still prepared to use that bomb because of how much Kent has influenced his thoughts on this whole situation. I know you feel bad about the deer, but it's not your fault. Things die. It's part of life. It's bad to kill. But it's not bad to die. To die? Well, yes, someday. I die? I don't know. You're made of metal, but you have feelings, and you think about things, and that means you have a soul. And souls don't die. Mom says it's something inside of all good things, and that it goes on forever and ever. When Hogarth talks to uh, the giant, if we go back a little bit to just after the death of the deer on the nature of the soul, to begin with, it's this incredibly um, wonderful, intimate moment uh, in, in the junkyard that the giant's surrounded by all this dead metal. This is something that uh, Brad Bird said in the commentary. And um, <coughs> he's looking uh, inward at this point and, and asking questions of himself. You know, this, you know, he's, he's, he's comprehending death for the first time. Then when... Hogarth tells him about the nature of a soul, he rolls onto his back and looks to the stars and starts to look outwards mm. and comprehend the rest of the world and the rest of existence with himself factored into that as more than just dead metal. Yeah. Which, again, although not with the dead metal part, but that is part of the transitional nature of growing up when you're a child usually up to the age of about six or seven your perception of the world is very much with yourself at its center 
um, and, and looking inwards in terms of how things are impacting on you. Once you start to get past that age, you have more of a comprehension of how you impact on the world and how the you know, the more wider ramifications of what the world is and how you fit into it. <clears throat> I, uh, I love that about this movie. The fact that they talk about such serious subject matter existence in an animated kids movie is something that I haven't seen anywhere else. It's the, the deepest part in that matter. Well, I, I would say you've seen it with Pixar. I think Pixar have carried, you know, that philosophy towards yeah. making yeah. family Wally. children's films. Wally, yeah. Uh, and also Up as well. Up talks about death in a very yeah, frank true. way. And Toy Story uh, in an abstractive way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Up is more pessimistic about it all. Like, it, it, it brings you back in the message, but with the, the childlike view of death that Hogarth has, it's very wise that... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think w what was great about the scene that you're talking about is that he doesn't, he doesn't talk about death ha happening to you as a negative thing. It's more just a part of life and that killing is a negative thing. Like yeah. all things die and that's, that's fine. You know, that's okay. But killing is wrong. Taking a life is a horrible thing. Right. Yeah. You're right about the wisdom there. He, he seems like a, a, a Tibetan monk. He really knows his stuff. Well, he's just gone through with his father be having just recently departed. I expect he's been thinking about right. it a lot. And, yeah, maybe talk to his mother about that. And he has a very clear view. Hogarth's outlook is it's not black and white at all, but it is very unclouded by hate or cynicism or the anger that you you can assume he would have been feeling in all of this that's that's been going on but when uh, you can see this in the scene where the bomb is coming hogarth is one of the first people to accept this is going to come it's going to happen and there is nothing we can do about it what i want to do now is hug my mother yeah. and not be one of the, the the townspeople behind him many of them are just you know panicking and screaming and running back and forwards but he accepts it so simply and so easily. I think the maturity level has to do with the fact that he has to parent this giant robot and uh, he has to do a lot of growing up very quickly. Mm, yeah. When you said eyes unclouded by hate there, Sharon, you were quoting Josh? Well, he was, uh, she was quoting Princess Mononoke yeah. <laughs> specifically. There are many Ghibli-type moments, Miyazaki-type moments in this. The bit with the deer, I actually said to you, Sharon, no, that's, that's worthy of Ghibli. Well, it, it's, it's all part of taking on the perspective of war being something where there is no real good guys or bad guys mm -hmm. there is a mixture of motivations going on and there and these motivations you know conflict with each other and that's you know the way you should perceive conflict it's clashing motivations there's not a i mean there are certain conflicts like say world war Two, where one side could be painted as clearly evil over the other but um in most cases you need to be a bit more mature need to examine both sides and realize that if we found some common ground that these two sides could actually work together and 
like you know the conflict between the iron giant and the army a lot of it is to do with you know ignorance and uh, clashing motivations and stuff like that rather than anyone being particularly wrong mm. very symbolically when he decides he wants to be superman and puts the uh, big s on his uh chest uh this is a decision he goes back to obviously at the end when he uh, goes after the missile he's deciding to be a shield there yeah rather than a sword and it made me realize that he's been wearing it all these years since the 30s but superman has got a shield on his chest that's what he does when he's doing his job right he's between us the humans and whatever is threatening the humans mm. he's not necessarily snapping necks he's supposed to be in the way of the bomb when he is heartbroken and Dean sends him away, he leaves the S behind, he leaves the shield, because he uh, is starting to wonder whether he is just a gun. The reason why he becomes Superman again is because of his link to Hogarth. He the, Hogarth is his link to humanity. Yeah. And when Hogarth, is, when he thinks that Hogarth has died, he loses everything and decides mm. to revert back to his quote-unquote natural state. Yeah. So um, when Hogarth tells the Iron Giant to choose what he wants to be, he says Hogarth. So he doesn't necessarily choose to be Superman or anything like that at first. He chooses Hogarth as his link. And yeah, then yeah. when he goes out to the missile that's when he decides who he wants to be after that. Yeah. You get a clear evidence that being this weapon at this point is a choice because he's aware of it because when he's running away with Hogarth, he actively chooses to shun that part of him from attacking yeah. and carries on running instead of engaging. It's only when he, he makes the distinct choice where my link from humanity is cut off and I no longer... It's easier not to feel... It's best. It's it's far easier just to attack and do what I'm. Mm. I've I, what comes naturally, I suppose you could say. Yeah. That, that that's why I think the Iron Giant is the best Superman movie yes. uh, ever made because I think that's what's been missing from all of the Superman movies for me yeah. is that. I, I think that's the way you make a character that powerful, complex. Is that instead of making the 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 threat be you know be concentrated on him, have the threat be concentrated on people more vulnerable than him, yes. and have Superman have a deep connection to those people who are vulnerable, yeah. um, and also just like Superman has the capacity, like he could kill people with. Uh, you know, a flick of a wrist. And it's the same with the Iron Giant here. He has the capacity for awesome destruction when he wants... I mean, there's, you know, the scene where he fires that ball of energy towards mm. the battleships, it misses, and then it just explodes like a... Uh, almost like an atom bomb. Um, so you you get a sense that, okay, this guy could just kill us all really easily, but he chooses not to because he doesn't have to be that. And that's what Superman um, is meant, you know, I for me, I think that's what he's meant to be. Just because he has the capacity to destroy people, or kill people, or kill the, you know, the bad guys, he doesn't because there's another way. 
with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) And that's actually one thing that the Transformers films do not have and Prime does have. And obviously we will talk more about this when we do Prime. But it's the idea that when you have something that is big and huge and to you as this little small human down on the ground, virtually indestructible, the way that you overcome that threat is not necessarily by finding something that is bigger and more awesome and more destructive in order to smash it into bits, but by giving it a stake in the humanity that surrounds it and Mm. giving it a reason not to destroy. Arguably, you could say that Superman Returns was sort of trying to do this uh, in that um, Kal-El does lift up this enormous kryptonite island that was threatening all of Metropolis and uh, and throws it out into space in that same kind of self-sacrificial way and then falls back down to Earth. It's just it was so bogged down with everything else that that got lost and then they hammered home the Jesus metaphor far too hard. Iron Man did that in Avengers. Yeah. Yeah, essentially, the problem with Superman Returns is they took away the relatability of that situation. Yeah. Like, Superman's always far too often just put on this pedestal. Yeah. And it's interesting when they bring him down to our level, that's what makes him interesting. Also, he doesn't have a choice at all in Superman Returns. He's just mm. already made it. You know, it's, yeah. he's just trying to get there before, and then Lex shivs him on the way. I do think, though, when uh, people criticise the Jesus uh, comparison in in films when it's used to show self-sacrifice and rebirth, I think they are getting a little bit preoccupied with simply the representation of self-sacrifice and rebirth Mm. that the Western world is most familiar with. Those those images and those ideas have been in mythology a hell of a lot longer than Jesus. He's just the one we know the most about or, or have had pushed at us the most often in some cases. But that's that doesn't necessarily mean that... Uh, anybody who uses it from there on after is consciously replicating that particular story. It's far older than that. Mm. It was made the most impact. Old magic. Oh God, Lily Potter. actual action sequence itself before the giant becomes an engine of destruction shall we say uh, it's it's one of the most thrilling two minutes of uh, action ever this is how you do it Michael two minutes long absolutely <laughs> thrilling it's a lot at stake you got a kid you know in the giant's hands he's trying not to fight 
but it's also it's breakneck speed. There's lots of military ordnance going this way and that, but you don't actually want anything bad to happen to anybody. And it's over in two minutes. It's not just deafening you for an hour. Yeah. That surely though that the the climax that lasts an hour is the same mentality that wants Hogarth to get to where he's going yeah. quicker because they don't want to see all of this world building through the forest. Yeah. They want the climax now and they want it to last an hour. Never sleep with these people. <laughs> to their credit, <laughs> the first Transformers film, and we will say this in a, I think it's two weeks from now, that the first um uh, Michael Bay Transformers film, they hold back on the Transformers for a while. There is that tantalizing kind of Jurassic Park thing going on. But unfortunately, what you get in the meantime is a lot of Sam, and he's a horrible person in comparison to Hogarth. Mm-hmm. So, again, I mean, th- there are parallels. I will stand by this between the Transformers films and the Iron Giant. Uh, obviously, he doesn't transform into a car. I, I but see he does the transform connection. into a giant destruction machine. I see the sort of connection where Hogarth and the giant, uh, Sam and Bumblebee, as it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Done far better and different in this Prime series, but we'll come back to that later, as we keep saying. <laughs> I have a theory that, that they could feasibly either relaunch this film from the director of Ratatouille and The Incredibles and just pretend that it didn't come out in 1999 <laughs> and people would go and see it. And just yeah. make it like, you like big fighting giant robots? Well, we got them! Yeah. And, you know, put some marketing behind it. Or, shot for shot live action remake. Ooh. You know, directed by Brad Bird again. He's done live action. Mm-hmm. Mr. Possible 4. He wouldn't do so, it. So, uh, <laughs> of course he wouldn't do it. No. But, um, uh, this is obviously a rather uh, tender um, situation for him. Uh, but uh, giving it to, to somebody who loves the Iron Giant and, and you know, it, this is all just wishful thinking, but ultimately it's got the enormous robots that people seem to go for. But here's the thing. Transformers only really has, in, the, in its three-hour running time, about 32 minutes worth of robot. This would have to have a hell of a lot more. But then again, it's only got an hour and 26-minute running time. So again... The ratio of extra robot is there, but, you know, it's it just doesn't outstay its welcome. Just, uh, to, to go back to the action sequence, yeah. um, uh, one thing I, I noticed um, w- watching it again for this podcast um, is the very, very distinct contrast between the, uh, the sequence where the giant is flying through the air trying to protect Hogarth from yeah. all these, um, you know, weapons and bullets Iron and what have stuff. you. Um, and then the scene that follows that where he starts attacking. Mm. It's that when the giant is being protective and defensive, the, the tone of the movie is inspirational. It's like, this is something you should aspire mm. to be. The moment he turns into the aggressor, the tone almost becomes kind of horrific. Like, yeah, yeah. um, there, there's a soullessness to the Iron Giant in that sequence that we've never seen before. And we've, well, we have seen it, but only in glimpses when he sees guns and what have you. But now it's in full force and the, it's scary. It's, it's terrifying. And this reinforces the ultimate message of this film. It's that, you know, protecting the people you love and care about is absolutely something you should aspire to. But mindless violence is 
complete no matter what the motivation is wrong it's it's completely wrong mm. um the skies go crimson it's the yeah. red menace that they've been terrified of they've created it for themselves yeah so scary is because you know his mouth is hidden so you don't have expression through there and his mm. eyes are his eyes know. are pinpricks of red mm-hmm. while we're on the subject I just want to talk about the actual design of um, the giant in his attack mode because, attack giant yeah because it's very reminiscent of uh, the War of the Worlds? War of the Worlds, yes. Yeah. Especially when they have that shot of him walking towards you, you get the shot behind where he's got the three tendrils, and you just get absolutely no emotion from it. It's, he yeah. literally just becomes a machine. But the fact that they, they came up with these interesting, like, unthinkable weapons, like the, the plasma board that disintegrates it has no explosion it just absorbs the tank and disintegrates it's, it's got a lot of G.I. Joe style uh, ordnance mm. stuff going on so uh, everyone jumps out of the tanks just before they explode yeah so at the end of the uh, it's not exactly a it's a bloodless bloodbath mm. so at the end of it there's been a lot of destruction but uh, no one's but actually died dead. someone I noticed, skinned their knee I noticed the War of the Worlds almost shout outs as well the fact that you have that sunset and everything behind the giant has gone red is like that red weed that covers everything yeah and of course they're coming from the red planet and the first thing uh hogarth says invaders from mars nothing can stop this thing we've hit it with everything we've got not everything general the bomb the nautilus has first strike capability and is not far offshore you scare me, Mansley. You want us to bomb ourselves in order to kill it? General, the giant seems to follow whatever attacks it. We can lure it away from the town, then destroy it. Radio the Nautilus. Tell him to target the robot and await my command. This is Nautilus. What is the giant's current position? 67.7197 degrees west by 44.50177 degrees north. Locked and loaded. And uh, John Mahoney, by the way, is uh, General Shannon Rogard. Uh, wonderful kind of, you know, understated military performance. He, yeah, he does his shouting, but uh, he could just have played it like Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. But you get that this is a guy who's been through World War II, is looking forward to retirement, would hope for, would like to not see World War Three on his watch. And Mansley's ridiculous paranoia clearly sets him on edge so when he explodes at him in dean's junkyard it's just he's undergone years of these little little upstart assholes jumping at shadows and and now you know he's he's actually wasted millions of u.s dollars on an art project yeah because if you think about he brought battleships to a small little town up in maine based on a photograph the amount of 
the amount of time and coordination it would take to bring something that close mm. must be ridiculous. And again, this was uh, all partly to massage Kent's ego. He even boasts to to Hogarth that he's showing off to a kid. I can have the army in here with a phone call. That's how important I am. Like, who are you impressing, Kent? The guy, the kid thinks you're a total asshole. I think part of why the general is rubbed up the wrong way by Kent as well is that that attitude of violence and wanting the hardware broken out and wanting to start a war effectively so rarely at least in fiction comes from people who've actually seen combat mm. yeah 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 the, uh, this guy reminds me of um general eisenhower from uh, uh, world war Two. he was actually uh, president uh, and uh, he wrote extensively after uh, being involved with it about the military-industrial complex with various very prophetic visions of what it would turn out to be like in a few decades, and it did. Um, check out what Eisenhower said about the military. Having said that, um, various soldiers have talked to uh, Bird in the interim and said, well done, you kind of made us look like human beings in this film. It could have been so easy to make them just seem like warmongers. Or just like the agents that show up in E.T., just the big, scary, yeah. bad guys that show up. Every that, other police officer. That bit in E.T., where the guy in the spacesuits, the guys in spacesuits come into the house. I, they're sort of like, they're poking out their arms like space zombies. It's impossible for them not to have stood out front and gone, right, how should we go in there, guys? Space zombies again? That's always good for a giggle. <laughs> <laughs> their, their faces when they find out that we're just blokes from the uh, from the government, it's ridiculous. There is there are again parallels between this and ET. Um, I, I do li I really really like ET, but the Iron Giant is a more uh, measured film. Well, I, I would have said mature, which yeah. is, seems uh, you know, seeing as this film is targeted at quite a young audience, that's really promising. Yeah. That Brad Bird was like, okay, you know, I don't have to talk down to these kids. I can talk quite frankly about what, you know, in a in an appropriate way. There's no content in here that would be uh, inappropriate for a child. But he, the ideas and the concepts here are, you know, very mature. Yeah. But it's, it's you could say, well, you can't possibly show this to young kids. Cold War paranoia, they won't understand. It doesn't matter. It's yeah. the setting. You've effectively put them down in a sci-fi B-movie fantasy landscape. They'll accommodate for what they're seeing. Mm. And this, I can't really honestly see good kids watching this and not being absolutely fascinated. Yeah. Obviously bored kids who, um, you know, nothing entertains them and they're jaded as hell. They're not going to like it, but they're not going to like anything. Sorry, Naomi, carry on. Uh, I, I'm just saying that I grew up with it, and I'm exactly that kid that you're talking about. I didn't understand what a Cold War was. Were they fighting in winter? I don't. But um, I, I did fill in the gaps. There was this kid who had a robot, and the, there were people in uniforms that wanted to take the robot or beat it up or something. And yeah. that was all I needed to know. 
That's it's as much as a kid needs to know about E.T. There are men who want E.T. That's one of the first films that uh, a lot of um, live-action films that a lot of kids my age saw in the 80s. And uh, so th- there was no confusion there. Men from the and government want aliens. That's that's just a given. But because they put, like, deeper things into it, it made it so that adults could watch it too. Yeah. You know, it made it for everybody. It's a film that evolves as you get older. It means mm-hmm. different things to you as you grow up. As a kid, I think what you're drawn to is the central relationship between Hogarth and the giant. And, and, and that's what everyone, no matter what age you are, immediately identifies with. But as you grow up and you start to understand some of the symbolism and the messages, you know, in the film, uh, it, it grows as a film. It, it, it improves as time goes on. You'd have been about nine or ten, wouldn't you, Josh, when you saw this? Yeah, yes. And you, Jerome, about the same. Yeah, um, I actually, my introduction to this, I, I grew up thinking everybody had watched the Iron Giant because <laughs> we watched it in our junior school assembly like oh, three times. You had a good school if they were showing <laughs> this. We got to see, what did we get to see? One of our dinosaurs is missing. <laughs> Racist Disney Tosh. I think I was three. I think I was three when the movie came out. Jeez. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's That's the okay. first time I've been on a podcast and felt old. Like, <laughs> well, I am. You're still young. Welcome to the you more and more as you go on. I am. Uh, I'm sorry. The, interestingly, the townspeople. When the giant saves those two kids, they have the inverse reaction to it that Kent does. Kent goes from skepticism to realization that this thing is real, belief, and then fear in seconds. They go from, oh, you know, skepticism, uh, you've heard these talk of this giant, but they're not really going to really believe it. Then they see it, they see it act to save uh, children, and then within seconds they go to acceptance, fear to acceptance. That's one of the central themes of this film and the path people take to that acceptance. This is General Rogard. Ready the attack and prepare to retreat to the fallback position. No! No! Stop! My son is out there! No, wait! It's me! Rogard, remember? It's bad to kill. Guns, kill. And you don't have to be a gun. You are what you choose to be. You choose. Choose. Oh, God. It's okay. It's okay. We gotta show them you're good. This finale, I mean, there's, there's not many other uh, animated films that actually come close to it for me. The, the, the death of Mufasa has similar um, ramifications for me, emotionally speaking. I think the reason why the effect of the movie is so strong is because they take so much time to build up so many different things uh, yeah. throughout the movie. Uh, fear of guns and atomic bombs, you know, are just little things at the beginning and then actually happen. Uh, lines of dialogue like Dean's You Are Who You Choose to Be is repeated with Hogarth and uh, characters coming into conflict like uh, Kent Mansley and Dean and the General uh, and Death all return in the climax. They're all there. It's Here it is. And um, the I Love You line from Hogarth and the Superman line from The Iron Giant 
is the culmination of of all that's happened. It's what the film is building up to. It's said with such conviction. He's not shouting at the giant. It's almost like he doesn't even uh, expect the giant to hear him. And the, the roar of his jet engines, likelihood, he wouldn't have heard it. But it's just a moment of absolute clarity for Hogarth. And the way that the giant says Superman, he's like, it's he's reached it, essentially to him. He's reached the point where he's he's become the embodiment of what he believes Superman is like, and he just accepts that. And he he dies in quotes with that in his mind that he's done he's fulfilled uh, ambition that he's held since Hogarth introduced to him. I I, I think it's it's for me it's less that uh, it's less that he's fulfilled an ambition or it's more that he's finally comfortable with who he is. Um, I, I think a lot of a lot of the film, the the Iron Giant has been a bit confused about who he is and what his place in the world is. And in this moment, he's like, this is my place in the world, and I'm okay with that. And then he accepts the unknown fate that awaits him. Because he doesn't know that he might survive no. this uh, this uh, explosion. He could very well die. He He's never encountered a, a, a weapon of this destructive force before. So... Uh, the fact that he it turns out that he is alive i i don't think diminishes his sacrifice no. yeah i i did uh, hear that said it doesn't for several reasons one for the 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 reasons you you, you st- said which are that his intentions and his understanding of it are the point uh the other is that sacrifice in and of itself does not need to be absolute And that the meaning of it isn't in the absolute sacrifice. It's in everything that surrounded it. The intention intention to sacrifice absolutely is what matters. Yeah. And the knock-on effect to everybody that you have sacrificed for. The implication of suggesting that a sacrifice only means anything if it is complete and total and nothing else comes after it would kind of suggest that it only means anything if an atheist sacrifices themselves. Yeah. And I think it's brilliant the way they seeded the final scene. I mean, even though they clearly showed he can put himself back together, they never it never come, comes up during the film. You sort of forget that fact to the point where you absolutely believe that he's mm. he, he's not coming back from this. Or you think to yourself, you know, that these are not going to be pieces that will be able to pull themselves back together. He's not going to fall into neat pieces. Yeah, the example you've seen is him being hit by a train. The difference between a train and an atomic bomb is worlds apart. (laughs) But this is all our first viewing. It's all our sort of, oh my god, the giant's dead now. That's We've seen it so many times since then. One of the reasons is because of its wonderful cycles aspect, this kind of the life goes on side of it you want to see it again and again and again you want to show it to people you want people to feel like you feel during this film you want them to feel the absolute loss and then the absolute soaring joy at the very end it's it's a worthwhile feeling to have and to suggest that one cheapens the other i kind of feel sorry for people who think that i i don't think it's of uh 
an opinion that's widely held these days. I heard it a lot because I, as part of research for this podcast, I actually read some reviews from the time, and I think a lot of people felt that way at the time. Yeah. But um, I think as time has gone on, I, I, people have accepted the conclusion that uh, Brad Bird uh, gave us. I think people can, can it's, it's easy to conflate this sort of like he sacrificed himself, but it actually turns out that he might survive with the sort of cartoon kids movie, not unwillingness to actually have a big high consequences yeah. final thing, like to not have a character die. Oh, he's actually okay. Like that's some, that sort of thing where a character so like would trusty like, out of uh, Lady and the Tramp. <laughs> that sort of, even though like in that case, I think it's very similar to what this is as well. I'd say more like Chief in Fox and the Hound, like a, case of yeah. like yes. where they're not willing to oh it's for kids we don't want to let them die let's make it let's make it a happy like it can't be a sad ending it has to be happy whereas i know because the if you remember the um the trustee was supposed to die and they and well, no, woman there was said, one guy oh, well, that, that'll upset us all well there was some people who thought he should die and some guy and the, some woman said that it wasn't necessary and i still think it really i don't think trusty dying adds anything of significance to the ending of lady in the well, we haven't. Th- th- it's not called the trusty He's he's a tertiary character. Well, true, and he gets, I agree. He gets his I moment. agree completely. This is this is the Iron Giants movie. It's thus far more important that it be about uh, him and, and the eventual. Uh, I'm not actually arguing with you there. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's just it's easy for people to. I think especially because we got very used to a lot of animated f- films for kids being that way that we start yeah. kind of seeing like if a character actually turns out oh he's alive at the end then it then we it's easy for us to immediately jump to thinking that that's a cheap. That's a cheap move. Again, though, I think there is a misinterpretation there of what consequences mean to a child. Because a a child... Time frames are so... I don't want to say skewed, but your perspective of them is so different when you're very young. Oh, absolutely. That even if you know with every ounce of your being that somebody is going to come back that doesn't make the grief you feel when you lose them any less if anything permanent death is is something that it takes children longer to come to terms with i mean i when i was i was 12 so i had a pretty uh, relatively adult formulation of how these things worked when and my grandparents emigrated to new zealand and i knew that the odds were i would never see them again and it felt to me like they died to the extent that when my grandfather actually did die a couple of years ago i was sad but it kind of felt like i'd already done my grieving for him that makes a lot of sense actually so, so to have a loss as a child, it doesn't matter if they're going. Or in a way, I think it doesn't matter if they're going to come back. You still feel the stab. It hadn't occurred to me in these exact terms before, but Kent Mansley, hiding behind a shield of patriotism, acts only to further his own selfish progression and abandons his country and his people at the exact point an outsider with nothing invested in humanity, feared and attacked by us chooses to give absolutely everything to protect the person he loves and the lives he has grown to value by knowing this person. That missile is targeted to the giant's current position! Where's the giant, Mansley? Well, uh, we can duck and cover. There's a fallout shelter right there. There's no way to survive this, you idiot! You mean, 
We're all going to... To die, Mansley, for our country. Screw our country! I want to live! Hold him, man. Make sure he stays here like a good soldier. Oh, no. Hmm. It's a missile. When it comes down, everyone will die. There it is. Shouldn't we get to a shelter? It wouldn't matter. Fix. Giant? Let's go home. It's reassuring the way they pull the family together at the end. They don't ram it down your throat, but it, it has become apparent through just a few uh, words between uh, Annie and Dean that they hit it off and they've formed um, more of a family unit there. The whole story feels like it was progressing to a point where um, healing takes place. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 There's one thing about that little epilogue thing that kind of confuses me. Uh, Hogarth is playing with all the kids that used to bully him, and I, I, it's not super necessary yeah. to know why they got, you know, they, they got together and had fun, but I, it's. Oh, it's he weird. was friends with an enormous robot, and they wanted to know what it was like. I thought precisely the same thing, Nama. It's in my notes. Why is Hogarth playing with the bullies? I didn't because I didn't think of it until you asked, and I was like, well, of course they're going to want to know what the hell was this robot like. I, I think but that makes it so he's so the shallow. coolest kid in school. 
it makes it so shallow. He's playing with these kids that are only hanging out with him because he had a giant robot dog. Yeah. Do, you, do you not... Well, I, I don't know. Do you not feel like it's reinforcing the themes of the, the film that, you know, these two parties that were in conflict with each other finding common ground? They're and, still fighting. Oh, okay. It's just like physical. fighting. I yeah, think no, no, I agree, them, Josh. Though, I agree. The, two of them were the kids that the giant caught, weren't they? Okay. Uh, well, yeah, either way, is... Hogarth suddenly becomes the, the most popular kid in town because uh, his robot, thanks to his guidance, saved everyone. I could not give that kid a dead arm. I couldn't give him a wedgie, a noogie, <laughs> a wet willy. <laughs> You name it. Yeah, I See, guess so. Because if I, I did, everyone else would beat me up and go, Are you crazy? <laughs> I just felt that they got to, they actually talked to him instead of, because yeah. it just seemed like all of their interactions were in the class. And in the class, Hogarth always seemed to be the smartest guy, but he always knew that it's just because they didn't do their homework. He just did and, the stupid homework. And it, essentially, I think the whole incident gave Hogarth a chance to just talk to people and obviously they got to know each other that's how that's why i interpreted well it is again it's overcoming this idea of perceived threat that these kids perceive hogarth as a threat because he is more intelligent than them and there's a deleted scene that specifically the teacher rather unwisely i felt (laughs) actually used Hogarth to make everybody else feel bad. Oh. (laughs) Only Hogarth handed in his homework. Everyone else has to stay behind for detention except Hogarth. Yeah. That's the worst. I'll see you after school, Simpson. No, no, no. He'll see you after school, Simpson. It's the same thing. Also, it's a bit too neat and tidy and they've tied it up with a bow because Dean, who's been, uh, you know, trying desperately to sell his art and he see points out earlier that people will happily steal his junk until he makes it into art, then he can't give it away. Suddenly he gets appreciated as an artist. Well, I, I actually quite like the fact that he's, he's a bit bitter that his most conventional statue is the most popular. Yeah. But while his, 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 the stuff that he's got a lot of passion for, not many people view is that good. I think How there's ironic. a lot of artists that feel that way, quite frankly. So at least there's the, that bitterness still being there means it's not too neat. He's not just going to grab her and go, isn't life swell? But yeah, that, he literally <laughs> just says, you think that's my best piece? Yeah. If City has bought that statue from him, then at least that means he's done something which gets his name out there. Yeah. And as I said, with the giant actually performing this deed for everyone, that will have will have a knock-on effect. This never happened in real life, but imagine if that actually happened. What that would tell the world if that got out. Aliens exist, an alien came to Earth and protected us from ourselves. Superman, basically. <laughs> basically, yes. Yeah. Space Jesus. Detroit has a statue of Robocop. Damn straight. And he is also Robot Jesus. Do you remember the raccoon, Hogarth? I remember the raccoon. (laughs) There's so many quotes. Yeah. It's it's such a lovely film to watch again and again. If for some reason you guys have listened this far and have never seen this film, buy it. Buy several copies of it. Give it to your friends. This is... Just like uh, Digital Drift. It's something that... Uh, it's like Firefly. It needs to be pushed. 
It's the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. I don't like throwing around the word perfect because I, I think it's used too much. Um, but I, I can't think of many films that <laughs> where that word is uh, so appropriate. I, I think Iron Giant kind of achieves everything it sets out to achieve. Um, and I, I can't think of many flaws. Um, it, it's so near to perfect, it's kind of stunning. It's one I of can't the... think of anything about this film that I don't like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that I'd want to change. The marketing. Well, yeah, yeah. Ex- externally there is a lot wrong with what went on. But yeah. for better or worse, I mean, the marketing, the lack of marketing was one really huge downside to it. But a big reason this film is the way it is is because Warner Brothers Studios was shutting down animation as this film was going on like they they had after quest for camelot they had pretty much given up they just like they only had three months of brad bird's contract left when they bought turner entertainment and they just Mm. gave him the option of doing this they gave him a tiny budget a tiny production schedule but because of that they didn't have any time to really interfere with it like it just had to keep going and so this is one of the very very rare instances of a film being made in the hollywood environment in which the artists and the people making it can had complete creative control over it and couldn't like no one could stop them or interfere with them because otherwise it would slow the film down too much like and like staff were being let go as the production went on like by the time the film was done warner brothers animation was pretty much the remnants of the team and one lawyer and that was it and brad bird said it was like being let out of steerage and given free run of the titanic because you can run around first, because <laughs> you can run around first class, and you can drink brandy, and you can play pool, and you can party, and you're going to be at the bottom of the ocean in a few hours. But until then, you've got the run of the ship, and so they were able to make this the exactly the movie they wanted. Yeah. Wow. When you put it like that, actually, it could have been compromised to hell. They could have actually been trying to position it as something it wasn't it so could have and they so could have i mean to warner brothers credit they so could have not i mean they were gonna be shutting animation down anyway they so could have just axed this w- along with all the other 40 or 50 projects they would have had in development they well this so is supposed could to have, be uh this is supposed to be a rock opera uh by uh, originally by pete townsend of the who he exec produced it all the way through to the end even when brad bird came back after he'd you know, formulated this is what it's going to be like, and, and Townsend stared at him aghast at how completely different from Ted Hughes' The Iron Man it turned out to be. And yet he didn't go, nah, I've had enough here, and just, like, you know, take himself off, which could have doomed the project. Yeah, no, so, I mean... He, well done, Pete. Yeah, I mean, Townsend had pitched it originally himself, and Bird only signed on to it when he was just offered kind of his choice of what he wanted to do with his last bit of time at Warner Brothers. Yeah. And then, thank, and fortunately, yeah, Townsend was a good sport about it, and... uh and stayed on board despite Bird wanting to take it away from being a musical. Yeah. So, yeah, now that we think about it, um, the fact that nobody's bloody seen it and that it's this perfect little spot in the middle of uh, what was otherwise actually still a really great year, especially in terms of animation. South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut also came out, and Tarzan. So it's... The, The fact that it's a discovery adds to the quality of it. It's buried treasure when people can show it to you. Which is why it being out on Blu-ray would bloody help as well. Yeah. It belongs in a museum. 
Shout it <laughs> Sorry, that was Doc Brown doing that guy in the hat at the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> Anything else to add to the Iron Giant? Or if we keep putting bits on it, is it going to end up like the giant when Dean was pretending it was artwork? He'll just take it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we've well and truly covered it, to be Thoroughly. honest. And yeah. it's only twice the time it takes to watch the film. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. That's just how deep it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just got so much going on for it. I, I'm really glad the way that this was paced, uh, actually, because I, you know, sometimes I, I tend to be overbearing in my podcast, especially when I'm uh, very passionate about things. But um, uh, you guys have done fantastically. Thank you very much for sharing my 400th and making it fantastic. Thanks for having us on. Right? Yeah. No worries. No worries. So surreal for me. <laughs> What was it like now, mate? Is it, is, have you have you done podcasts before? No, I mean I've tried to start a couple, but that just I, it's hard to oh, do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. But yeah, I had a great time after you know the whole. This is awkward. I'm listening to people that I usually don't, you know, yeah. have a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you guys You've are done. you know, <laughs> you guys are people on a screen for me. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've done a lot better than I did on my first podcast because um, I, I think the first time I was on a podcast was, was with you and Tony, Alex, yeah. and I was terrified because <laughs> uh, to me, about? like, I'd, I'd completely forgotten. But, um, like, I, I mean, I, it's, it's silly to say this now because I think we're just, you know, we're good friends now, but I was a little bit starstruck at the time. I was like, oh, my God, it's a favor from the Digital Cowboys. There we go. And, yeah. <laughs> I know, is that you? You're still wet behind yeah. these. I'm yeah. still a ball of and, nerves. Uh, don't worry. We're, we're a bunch of assholes. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I can't possibly say the same because by the time I was on a podcast with him, I'd already known him for a little while. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. My arc was weirder because my first guest episode, I was pretty like pretty relaxed because I hadn't been listening to a lot of the Digital Cowboy stuff. But then I started listening to it, and then in future times when I was brought on as a guest, I went into listening mode instead of actually talking and participating. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel. Like this is something that I'm not allowed to like participate in. So I'm like, I'm listening to a podcast, but like I can reach out and affect it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's always that, there's always that initial thing of, Oh wait there, I can talk to you right yeah. now. Can't I? <laughs> Seriously. I can talk back and they'll hear me. Firstly, I have to remember not to shout over you cause you can hear me now. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yeah. Um, I think I've got your first podcast here, Josh. Uh, was it, um, there was, you were on the live digital rodeo, which was at Alton Towers, but then you came on with Leon Ditz, uh, you came on with Leon and Ditz to talk about summer games for episode yeah. 168. Nice. I was terrified. Because <laughs> not only was, you know, it was you and Tony, but, Leon Cox as well from yeah. Get, which seems so weird to say now because me and Leon are like are like buddy buddies now. But um, like at the time, I was like, oh my god, I'm amongst podcasting elite and I'm just a listener. Uh, but yeah, and now I'm one of you guys, which is kind of crazy. Whatever. <laughs> well, um, hang on a second. This uh, whole thing stopped working. Oh no! It's okay. Oh no. 
Okay. Well, look, you guys were recording it, weren't you? Yep. Just my, my one just broke, like, and I was hoping that your your silence meant that your recording was fine. Yeah, we got to the end of this epic recording and found the whole file had been corrupted at my and Josh's end. The show had been lost. I'd like you to imagine that feeling for a moment. Imagine facing having to say all of what had just been said again with exactly the same levels of passion or just never doing the Iron Giant. Mine's still going, I think, so... Oh, okay, that's fine then. Fortunately, Dan's end had recorded fine, which is why the sound quality on this one has been slightly different. Thank God for Dan. And always remember, folks, to have as many people recording as possible. So thank you guys very, very much for coming on the show. Daniel Floyd. Thank you for having me. Joshua Garrity. Thank you for having me. Jerome McIntosh. No worries. And Name Chaibiti. Thank you. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural Handshake Complete. Do you want to do that again? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say Digital Handshake Complete and I don't know why. Digital handshakes <laughs> are digital. It's never. Okay. And I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural, Neural Handshake, handshake complete. complete. That was a good one. I am not a gun. <laughs> <laughs>